Good evening, everyone. And it's time to attend the tale of our spooky Halloween episode of The Cup Reviews, brought to you by Cabahemlock Theater. Yes, if you watched our Jekyll and Hyde episode last year, where we bashed David Hasselhoff to no end, it was a hoot, then you'll know that we did drop hints of what this year's Halloween episode would be. And it is none other than the 1982 Pro Shot production of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, starring George Hearn as Sweeney and the late, great Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Lovett. She passed away right before we recorded our Halloween episode last year. And so we're like, well, we can't rush this episode. So we'll hold it till next Halloween and we'll instead just bash David Hasselhoff instead. And that worked out just great. But we're going to be talking about this delicious meaty morsel of a musical today. It was directed by the also late, great Hal Prince. Music and lyrics by the late, great Stephen Sondheim. And the book, which oftentimes gets forgotten, unfortunately. We oftentimes forget to mention him. But the book is written by Hugh Wheeler, who doesn't get enough credit for what he did with this piece. And this was all based off a original adaptation in, from the 70s by Christopher Bond. So there we go there. And joining us on our journey through Fleet Street is a treasure trove of Sweeney Todd veterans. And we also have some new faces here as well. First off, we have the wonderful Gabby Epstein, who played my older sister in Bye Bye Birdie. Yes, all those many eons ago. And, you know, she also played the wonderfully crazed beggar woman in the most recent Toronto production of Sweeney Todd. Hello, Gabby. Welcome to the cup. Hello. It's so great to be here. I don't have too many embarrassing stories of you as a very small person, but I'll save those for another day. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, but Gabby, tell us, what are your experiences with Sweeney? What's your favorite song? What's in your cup? Do you have a special ensemble that you are wearing tonight? Oh. Well, lots of first off, yes, the, the ensemble, of course, you know, this is the longest my hair has ever been. So it's the first time I've really been able to do this Angela ah, style in a while. Love it. It's truly iconic. I was saying it's very Princess Leia, mm -hmm. but like musical theater Princess yeah. Leia. Um, <laughs> I also have a an apron on. I, I will not be covered with flour or meat or blood in this episode, hopefully. Well, and I have a little prop that maybe will come in. <laughs> uh, and in my cup tonight is a dark and strong beer. Oh, from hi. this is the Jared, where is this beer from? It's two pillars. Uh, two pillars. It's in Calgary. In Calgary. Ah, there we go. I have a uh, Canadian craft beer here. And Sweeney. Sweeney is has been in my life for many, many years, but here's the interesting thing. Mm. I, it was not until actually prepping for this that I've seen from start to finish mm. the entire pro shop version. I've seen clips of it over the years. Mm -hmm. I've never actually watched it mm -hmm. from beginning to end. So mm -hmm. that was a real joy for me. And when we did our amazing immersive production of Sweeney Todd with Talkus Free Theater, that was my first time performing Sweeney Todd, which was a joy for my brain. And playing the beggar woman in an immersive production of Sweeney Todd was 
one of the highlights of my theater career because as the beggar woman, when you're doing a regular production of Sweeney Todd, you leave when your stuff is done. In mm -hmm. an immersive production, you just keep on wandering around the building. <laughs> I'm in You just is always searching for the damn beetle, you know? So <laughs> it was a really incredible way to just immerse myself in the entire production. I feel like mm. I learned and absorbed so much more by being in this immersive production than I had been, than had I been in a traditional sort of cross production of Sweeney Todd. Mm. So for all those reasons, I'm thrilled to be here. Love and, it. Um, I love it. I love it. And joining us also as a new face on our Fleet Street panel here is the wonderful Jeremy LaPalm. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Mac. How are you, my friend? I am fantastic. I'm so ready to just take a huge bite out of the meat pie that is this musical. Yeah, there's a lot to digest for sure. <laughs> and uh, and I'll I'll kind of piggyback off what Gabby was saying. I also got out my apron. I've got a mug, uh, a mug full of suds. I've got my razor, my leather strap. Oh, oh my god! Sounds. This is Ooh. this is amazing. Oh, that's I can hear it. Yeah, yeah, that's the sound that I associate with this uh, that moment in Pirelli's where where yeah. it's just punctuated by those. I yes, love that. Yeah. Yes. And I also see you have a little other fun Sweeney prop behind you as well. Oh, this is this is I actually bought this. I went to see a production in New York at the Met in ah. must have been the early the late aughts. Mm. And uh I got the libretto here with some beautiful production photos from Love different it. versions around the world, uh, as well as the original Broadway. And uh, yeah, like you were talking about like the book writing, Hugh Wheeler mm -hmm. absolutely does not yep. get a whole lot of mention for what he's done no. with this ridiculous no. story yes. set in a musical. Like this was, I, unlike Gabby, I saw the pro shot many years ago when I first started doing musicals in community theater, I, I did plays. I, I'm an actor mm -hmm. and I would mostly did plays. I'm, I'm not an actor, Jack. You're not an actor. <laughs> <laughs> no other actor. But it was this pro shot that made me go like, musicals are cool and exciting mm -hmm. and funny and dangerous. Yep. And mm -hmm. for those mm -hmm. and many other reasons, Sweeney Todd mm -hmm. has a very special place in my heart. I love it. I love it. And Jeremy, do you have a favorite song from Sweeney? Gosh, I, I will probably go through a lot of them. It's almost definitely Epiphany because mm. it's barely a song. And when George Hearn gets his hands on it and just screams his way through it. I thought that was the most exciting thing I had ever heard. I agree. I agree. And then, of course, coming back after doing a wonderful The Cup interviews, it is the wonderful Michael Toronto, who was Sweeney in the Sweeney Todd Immersive production with Gabby. So, Michael, how are you? What's it like to be revisiting Sweeney now? outside of doing it in a London coal house, you know, or like in, or like in an old community church, like what's like mm -hmm. just to revisit it in your living room? Oh my gosh. Well, just, I mean, if I may even just take it one step further, because since we did it in Toronto, Talk is Free Theater brought that, a version of that production to Buenos Aires, Argentina. Ah. And so we did it immersively in a theater space there as well. It was, like it, it's a, it was a building that is multi-purpose. There's a theater, like a black box theater with some mm -hmm. dressing rooms and a cafe attached to it. 
So we re repurposed basically everything that we did in Toronto for this different space in I love it. Uh, Buenos Aires. And that was a, that, that could take up a whole episode just talking about that mm -hmm. and the experience of that doing the show in for an Argentinian audience who all happened to know it. Like they, they <laughs> just, it was very interesting to see the difference in, in the audience demographic and people would be waiting afterwards and they all knew the show. And, but just much like our immersive production, when I was holding Gabby and the, the, I mean, I'm assuming that anybody watching this knows the story. So there's not going to be a yes. spoiler, right? No. So, so she died. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and anyway, so, but there were people who like were even closer to me at that point, And I could hear this one gentleman came and saw the production four times of the six that we did it in Buenos Aires. And I could hear him crying every single day, which was the, the joy of doing it immersively. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I don't want to spoil too much of that. Unlike Gabby and Jer, who, you know, came really prepared. I have like a Halloween-esque sweater, which is a little bit it. more Freddy Krueger, I guess, than anything else. It's but, perfect, but though. Halloween. And the only prop that I brought is over here, the Dora that we won for our production of the Top. So it's just lives right there on my shop. <laughs> well, they, they, they called us Sweepy Todd at the Doras. <laughs> Ooh. Because oh, we yes. swept the Doris. Damn right, right, you guys did. That's right. <sighs> that production's so good. So, so good. It needs to be remounted again. Take well, it across Canada. You know, there are things about the, I mean, I, again, I don't want to spoil any of the things for the questions that we're all getting warmed up to answer, which is so exciting. But yeah, it, it, there, it was really special to me for a lot of reasons. And mm -hmm. it was very interesting to watch because I've never seen the Pro Shop version before. I had never seen the show before for doing it i don't i didn't even really know the show before doing it to be completely honest so when going into it for the very first time like yes i learned my lyrics by listening to i listened to the patty lapone michael i never know how to say Cerberus. it right service I, yeah. I learned the lyrics to that album but but then still like to think that i kind of really created my own sweeney that wasn't influenced by george or len or anybody else really. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that. Yes. yes. But just because you asked everybody else, my favorite song. <laughs> yes, please. Um, what is your favorite song? Uh, that's a tough one because it's all about what, like, which do, like, which song do you like the best or which song do you like to sing the most? This, Ooh, the tough. one that I liked, the one that I really enjoyed the most is the quartet, the Kiss mm. Me the whole quartet yeah. that is done. Yes. Like that, I love that. And well, mm -hmm. and the lullaby that the beggar woman sings at the end. <laughs> and anyway, it just, Mm. Chef Kiss, Chef Kiss. Mm -hmm. Gabby, did you say your favorite song? I didn't. I realized I didn't. So, ah. like, for many years, and I feel like my in with Sweeney, like, the thing that brought me in was the song Not While I'm Around because Barbara Streisand mm. sang it. Like, that's, that was literally yep. my in to Sweeney Todd when I first started, you know, listening to musicals. And so that was and still probably is, like, my favorite song. I was, I tell sometimes these stories that I was recording my album, Gab Sings Babs, which is my own arrangements of Barbara Streisand's song while we were like doing the show. And so to sort of like be listening to it in its original form as I was kind of putting my own samples, it was very cool. But doing the show, like I just, A, I think Pretty Women is just the most mm. gorgeous, 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 gorgeous song, especially just mm -hmm. those lush, lush harmonies. Mm -hmm. And I, what I, my discovery, like a song that I never really knew or paid attention to at all before doing the show is wait. I thought that mm -hmm. it's just like 
so amazing. And mm-hmm. our I'm so biased because our wonderful Glennis Rani was just like so yes. brilliant singing it. Yes. And, you know, anyway, yes. oh, yeah. those are my favorite songs. She was brilliant at that song. And actually, fun fact about that song, when they did the 2007 film, that was actually the song that the studio wanted to cut from the film. And Tim Burton fought tooth and nail to keep it because he's like, no, that's the whole Mrs. Lovett is right there in that song. You have to keep that wow. song or else it doesn't work. And he almost walked off the picture. Because Well, not to mention that if you take it, like, it's a major important, the fact that he waits at all is part mm-hmm. of the, like, it's an instrumental point of the plot. Yes. Yes. integral so yes. anyway yes and character wise it's a big choice of is mrs lovett already planning that he's going to screw it up or is it just mm. she's just telling him to wait and savor it and he takes it too far it's a great character choice moment of how evil is mrs lovett planning all these steps like you know love it i love it love it Ha-ha. love it you love it <laughs> and we'll talk flag we'll flag them in the pro shot the songs that were cut from that We'll flag yes. that to talk <clears throat> about as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Check that. flagging and, yep, pinning, pinning. And then, mm-hmm. of course, we, we have the wonderful associate producer here at the Cup, Cup of Hemlock Theater. It is the wonderful Jillian Robinson. Hello, Jill. Hello, Max. <laughs> yes. Jill, now I know you said in the past you really love to play Joanna at some point because you know you have that crazy soprano. That's slowly becoming mezzo, to be honest, Mac. I feel like if you asked me that about five years ago, for sure, I could maybe squeak out Joanna. But I think I'm on the route to a a beggar or a love it. But that's fair. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But Jill, tell us what's your experience with Sweeney? And what's Mm -hmm. your favorite song? What's in your cup? What's in your your ensemble? Right. So I am rocking, I'm, I, I'm doing what Gabby did, we're rocking the Love It buns. I've caked on makeup on my face for this episode, <laughs> which is lovely. Um, I was actually, this shirt is in my Goodwill bag because I was going to get, I don't like the way it sits on me, but I was like, this is the exact color she wears pretty much and it has holes in it. So I'm wearing nice. it for this episode. It's amazing. Costume Love piece it. check. And then I am drinking a cup of no, mm-hmm. it's it's grape kombucha. I've had way too much coffee today, and I've done a hit exercise, so I am spiraling off the walls. So we're gonna we're gonna just mellow it down with some kombucha and water. Love it. Love it. Yes. So my experience. So I'm kind of like a Sweeney Virgin ish. I've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. I've listened to the soundtrack like bits and pieces, mm-hmm. but I had never seen a production of it. I unfortunately missed Talk is Free's immersive production, which, yes, please make it come back so that I can see it. <laughs> and yeah, and so I never seen the pro shot. We'll get into of the Sondheim repertoire. This one for me isn't like the top of the radar. I'm a pretty diehard into the woods gal. So- which Michael is directing in New Zealand. Amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of, I'm very new. I kind of just came into this fresh eyed and bushy tailed, but my songs, the songs that I like, I think this is going to be very stereotypical, but a little priest and mm. the worst pies in London. A couple mm-hmm. reasons. One, I just, I love the comedy and like the kookiness of mm-hmm. those pieces, which I know we have a question mm-hmm. kind of targeting that. So I'll kind of pin mm-hmm. that there. And also the, like, the difficulty level of those songs, like having, I played Little Red and Into the Woods when I'm back in community theater and Roast Pies in London reminds me of Your Fault. 
in a way of like performer wise, it's like, oh my goodness, all everything is changing and the lyrics are changing. <laughs> and oh my God. Blah, 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 blah. And I just think, especially in this production, mm-hmm. Angela kind of really helms it out. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's where I leave. I'll leave that there. All right. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. And for me tonight, I am drinking a diet cranberry ginger ale. Nice red. Also have the red in the shirt. So we got lots of blood reds and blacks going on there. I have my finishing the hat book on hand, ready to go if we need to reference any Sweeney Sondheim (laughs) notes. Let's see. I I grew up watching this. So when the film was coming out in 2007, I loved the trailer so much that I had to go on YouTube and like find more about the show. And this was back when YouTube allowed you to actually upload like big chunks of stuff. So like there was like the 12 parts of Sweeney Todd you could watch of this pro shot. So that's how I got introduced to this piece. So George and Angela have always been my OG Sweeney and love it. And then it was George and Patty who I adore as a deal. That concert with Neil Patrick Harris is just superb. But these two are the OGs for me. So I love this pro shot to death. And I was so excited when we finally got to do this for our Halloween episode, because it's been on our like episode list for like forever. And it's like, hey, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Now we got to it. So love Sweeney. Top three Sondheim shows. It's that company and into the woods are the three that like rotate in the top spot. Michael's now done two of of the top ones. So Michael, when are you doing company? I'm like eager for you to do company somewhere. I don't know. Don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Toronto has a bunch of empty condos you can like take over and you can do an immersive condos company. You know, Oh no! Something. <laughs> <laughs> I've opened Pentor's box. Did you I imagine? <clears throat> Our caddy would do it though. He would find a way to do it in a condo in Toronto. I mean, I would. Yeah, who needs those the pesky Marianne Elliott set pieces moving across the stage? Right. <laughs> just, I mean, I'm just picturing load every audience member into the elevator and have the whole cast sing the word "love" as they actually ride the elevator up and down. <laughs> It'd be brilliant. Anyway, side convo, company. We're not talking about you today. We're talking about Sweeney. Favorite songs, though, I do love A Little Priest. That is my number one. But I will say, because we'll talk about Little Priest later, as it gets into other topics, I will say my number one, though, at the moment is Pretty Women, because the suspense that is built into that song, where sometimes I actually got the pulse of the aorta into the beat of that song that you feel it throughout and it's just so good i remember the first time as a kid watching it going oh my god is sweeney gonna get it done now no he missed oh like just the tension that is built in that one song has you gripping your chair and it is brilliant so that is all that good stuff what do you say we get into some of these you know discussion questions and dive into this pro shot so let's do it let's do it so first off, we're going to talk about our leads. So what do we all think of George Hearn and Angela Lansbury's performances as the murderous duo of Sweeney Todd and Mrs. Lovett? Jeremy, as you are the person who has also grown up with this pro shop for a long time, what are your thoughts on these titular duo? Well, this, like you, this, is, this was my introduction to the show. This was mm-hmm. the first version of this that I'd seen, and I watched it a lot. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I had heard other versions that I really appreciated some of the differences in what they do. In particular, 
like the LBC with Len Carrier was Sweeney. Yeah. The difference where George, like people rightly so are very reverential of Sondheim wrote these lyrics and these notes, so we should do these. Mm-hmm. I think the not doing them works for George a hell of a lot better because mm-hmm. listening to Len go through Epiphany and you there, Herba, come and sit in the chair, come on, come, is so much less exciting than just yelling at people and being spontaneous and wild like that. Mm-hmm. So I love, for George in particular, I love how unhinged he constantly seems. Mm-hmm. Like he goes off the deep end. Yeah. And Angela obviously is so good at not only matching that energy, but the two of them together, I think they they manage to balance each other out so brilliantly. Mm-hmm of like who's kind of taking the reins on the crazy <laughs> on being crazier <laughs> they don't shy away from it and i don't think in this show you really can if you try to do it too naturalistically i don't think it like it, it it's from these like yeah. cartoon worlds like they're mm-hmm. almost cartoon characters yeah. and this production really like mm-hmm. shifts that into a whole different gear well, we saw what happened when they went naturalistic in the in the 2007 film. It lost a lot of magic when they just were, I hate to say it, but Johnny Depp and Helen Bonham Carter were fine, but they were kind of bland in that. Like, yeah. they didn't have, I mean, they didn't have a material, you wouldn't think that that would be, mm-hmm. that that would be too yeah. possible, yeah. but like it, you'd need to yeah. push it. Yeah, I think this yeah. show can stand mm-hmm. getting like, getting pushed around by, mm-hmm. by, by big performances like these yes. and so many of the other people in the show as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. Michael, as a Sweeney yourself, where do you stand on like this particular Sweeney and Lovett duo? Because you've done it now. Well, Matt, now that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe an unpopular opinion. Let's let me just preface by saying sometimes your first experience with something is the one that sticks with you. Maybe it's the one that you like the best, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not like trying to say at all that I was the best. It has nothing to do with me. What my foray into the show, given that it was an in, immersive experience mm-hmm. and knowing that the audience members are going to be very mm-hmm. close, mm-hmm. my goal and where the heart of it sort of has lied, stayed with me this entire time is in really in Sweeney's tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. In also, and so George's version to me, I mean, hey, like it was the, one, early on, it was exactly what a musical version of A Penny Dreadful would, should seem like as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. What I loved being able to do was to really focus on making it personal and to try and delve into what made, like why is Sweeney back in London? What what is that? And that's the story that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And what I saw in George was a really angry dog a lot of the time. And I sort of sometimes I there, there are times when I was losing with it. And I'm not saying it's hey, that maybe it's the direction. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not criticizing their ability or anything like that. But but it's just what I, I was missing in some of the of his performance was something that I could latch on to that would make me really, really care for him. Mm-hmm. And for why he was back. And so by the time we get to the end, where he's just realized that he's killed his wife, I don't know that I cared as much for mm. him as I might have. And I, it's also an older style of acting in some ways, too. I would argue that 
it was directed. I mean, Jeremy, I totally agree with you that it is it it's on stage. Like the, the version that I know is in like five feet away from people, if that. Whereas if you're doing something like Epiphany and you're saying you sir to sir and they're twenty to hundred feet away from you, you have to be huge. And I totally, totally get that. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, I just I had a hard time really sympathizing with him because of the size of it. And because of there were times where I just had a hard time really knowing what he really felt about anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's transformed. Yes, he's been screwed over by the whole the lot that life has dealt him. That was absolutely there, but I wanted to care for him more. That's mm-hmm. basically how I felt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And and Angela's Mrs. Lovett? Oh my gosh. Angela, on the other hand, I liked her more. <laughs> it's just to me, if as a foundational Mrs. Lovett, if she was it. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we know that she is, but like it just to me, I'm not saying that there's no improving on what she did. I was so I, there were times where I was watching going like, oh, you think that like just like, the way that she was. I was more blown away by her performance. Just I don't know how old she was when she did this, but she was like just her vocal ability and her she was so adept at playing that character in her way. That I she she had me the whole time for sure, mm-hmm. but I also really liked Helena Bonham Carter, mm-hmm. not a singer, yeah. but I really liked her take on it too. But yeah. that mm-hmm. being said, we're not talking yeah. about that. Yeah, so, not today. So, not today. But as a pair, as a duo, I do think that they work well together. Like I think mm-hmm. they there was a good balance between the two of them. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to, like I did really like Mrs. Lovett. I could totally be Toby and, and be wrapped completely in her own mystique and magic or whatever, and her motherly. And yes, I think it was a good balance for George Hearn's Big Angry Dog. So I think in the end, as a parent, it worked. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Gabby, since you've now watched it all the way through this pro shot, how did that affect your interpretation of these performances? Well, it's so interesting because, like, of course, like Michael, you know, my the time that I have spent the most with Sweeney Todd has been doing the performance because you go through a rehearsal process, you perform, you are so deeply with these characters, you perform it multiple times. Like the most experience I have with Sweeney Todd is actually doing the show and watching the the, the characters in, in that particular production. Mm-hmm. So it was so interesting and really wonderful for me to kind of like fall back in love with the show mm-hmm. in a, not even a, not a new way, but in a, oh, right. Like this is sort of where it's, where it started from. You know, it's like when you like are an architecture major and you go to Greece, even though it's not the like foot, like it's like, this is where it mm-hmm. all started from. So that was really incredible. As a vocalist specifically, this is like, I think what I was just most like, Michael was talking about Angela Lansbury's vocals. Like, I think I said to Jeremy in Worst Pies, like, there was one fra- one ascending phrase where I think she went through like five different registers, like on like every <laughs> single note going up. I was like, what is happening right now? But the reality is it was written for her, like with, for that voice. And so there is such an appreciation watching something like that when you know that it is like specifically written for that. She is such a, in the same way that Bernadette Peters is one of the many muses of Sondheim. Angela Lansbury is sort of like the other, you know, mm-hmm. female muse of Sondheim. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I thought she was just freaking brilliant. I loved watching her. <laughs> Knowing 
so many other parts of her career. It was just really fun going back and watching that like quintessential moment for her. I totally agree that I think it was like these animated characters a little bit. I mean, I think that like the this and the makeup, like that was all very intentional. Mm-hmm. And even like George Hearn's makeup, you know, like it was all mm-hmm. very intentional. It was not meant to be a realistic take. And when you're telling this kind of a story, I don't know, like we'll get into this more, but I have also having a lot of experience with the show Little Shop of Horrors, I actually saw a lot of similarities when I was watching it this time. Mm-hmm. And like the bit, you can't do Little Shop of Horrors naturalistically. You have to play the truth 100%. Mm-hmm. But like, if you lose the camp-esque-ness of that show, then you're not doing it correctly. You know, like mm-hmm. in the same way for me, I kind of feel like you have to sort of like, you can't play it natural. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. That's not like how the show is written. Again, that's by natural, I don't mean true. Like I, you still absolutely have to play the truth. And I think they did that very well. Where I feel like I thought their bigs were the best, like the best bigs I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Where I wanted more was in their smalls. Like, and again, we're watching the pro shot. So I appreciate that as well, where they mm-hmm. are performing mm-hmm. it for a theater. Mm-hmm. They're not performing it for a camera that's supposed mm-hmm. to be right up against their face. So I totally appreciate that where they had specifically been directed for film. It may have been different. They may have mm-hmm. performed it differently, but like, you know, I I thought George Hearn's vocals were off the charts and his bigs were just so powerful. There were mm-hmm. times when I wanted to see the more tender parts of him. And I thought Angela was more successful in giving the tender parts, mm-hmm. but I could have even seen more of it. And where I mm-hmm. actually, something that I noticed from Michael and Glynis's performances of mm-hmm. Sweeney and Lovett, something that I loved so much that I had never seen before is kind of the like playing the sort of sexual tension there, Mm. especially in our production specifically, Michael, I noticed it in my friends, just Mrs. Lovett's desire for Sweeney. Mm -hmm. And it was directed that way in our Mm -hmm. production. And I just like, I was missing that in this. And again, Mm -hmm. I don't have enough experience with all the different versions of the show Mm -hmm. that I don't know what's usually done Mm -hmm. what's usually you know anything but Mm -hmm. there was a little bit of that that i missed that i wanted that's so much part of love it's want Mm -hmm. it's not all of it but it's definitely a part Mm -hmm. of it that i would have liked to see i Mm -hmm. I think they could have gone further with that more sex sex And I sex love- is dangerous. Sex is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's like part of their relationship. It's a very dangerous relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jill, do you want to jump in and give your thoughts yeah. on, on this duo? Perfect pivot. I feel like I'm a bit of like a Michael and Gabby combo here. Um, <laughs> I find with Sondheim, like the brilliance and beauty of Sondheim's works are that like he writes, we've talked about this before, Mac, like he writes the rawness of humanhood like mm-hmm. his or like it's it's ugly messy people and like this is a like a huge massive musical but like there are those moments it's like where are the moments of just them yeah if you strip away all of this campiness like where are the, where is the love where is the trauma where is the And I think like what Michael was saying too, like, and again, this might've been in the direction is 
and I'll talk more about this later as well, but like if there really was like stepping up to the edge of the stage and like a facade and explaining the story, but then now kind of where I'm pivoting to Gabby of like in the moments where we are more inside of a scene and pressed Mm -hmm. up against like the revolving set pieces, Mm -hmm. like that's where I want like, yeah, the chemistry to have been a little bit spicier Mm -hmm. or like, and, and there was a part of me that I'm like, oh, at first it's like, okay, really kind of like how Angela's like sort of slithery lust (laughs) for Sweeney was there and he wasn't having it kind like, you know, that even in the staging where he's like, there's one scene where he's like, just like so straight and looking out and not indulging yep, her. By the scene. And as more people die, mm-hmm. as more victims, and they have this concocted, spiraling mess of a business, mm-hmm. I wanted to see like like the push and pull between mm-hmm. them a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But again, kind of picking up what everyone has already said, like I think vocally strong across the board, Angela Lansbury, again, I love the like, feisty there's like i forget what line it was but it i think she was talking to beetle and she i totally forget the text there'll be plenty of time for the bakehouse later yeah but it wasn't like it's like there'll be plenty of time but she was like there'll be plenty of time for the bakehouse later and i was like yeah she made that sexy like what like i'm like that's so random and delicious you know so i think she she really played played around with it whereas i think george and like of the two of them again like george to me was a bit like this is sweeney but it's like okay but who's sweeney you know anyways i can keep talking but i'll pivot to you mac what were your all thoughts? right i mean so as just like jeremy these are my first two sweeney and love it so they're always the base line and you know it's funny watching george Hearn play sweeney because he plays it the same way with angela that, that he does with patty lapone in the concert, which is just cold Stonewall, the man who has had his heart ripped out. So he's really like a walking Frankenstein creature that is just there on a mission to kill, and that is it. He's kind of like the Terminator, where like <laughs> there, yeah, where where he's just single-minded focused. And well, and what was great watching him do this versus the concert that he did with Patty Lapone years later in the early 2000s was watching some of his reactions like in the scene with Pirelli in um, where Pirelli starts to blackmail him and George like keeps his hands tight in front of him and his neck kind of comes in and there's like you can see the wheels turning and it's like that caged animal is just waiting and waiting until finally Pirelli says the one line about calling Beetle Bamford and he just lunges at that at his scene partner and takes him out, kind of like a like a rabid wolf or a rabid lion, like just waiting all the time. Okay, so this one of the things where he has such anger in him that is just driving him that he keeps it repressed, 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 and then he just explodes in some way, shape, or form. And then there's moments where he's at where he's where you get to see a bit of the old. Benjamin Barkery, there's like that glimmer that where you can see like, okay, maybe it was like a quiet guy with an odd sense of humor that he kind of has some of his own machinations and his own internal jokes that he gets, but only for him. Like, what, what, I love when he's writing the letter to the judge and he's laughing to himself. <laughs> like he's having just a grand time setting the trap for the judge. Like there's just like, okay, I could see that you were probably a guy who was the quiet barber who would give you the shave. And, you know, we'll probably chuckle to himself from what he observed. Like, he's one of those quite observative people. But 
I mean, George also at the same time, he has such a big bark in him as well. That's just when he does go to Epiphany, I always think of George Hearn and his shouting about, you know, who, sir, you, sir, you know, and you, and you can see how that's influenced other Sweeney's down the road. Like you watch, you know, Johnny Depp do it on screen. That's the one time where Johnny Depp gets really big is an epiphany and he's yelling at, at the people on screen. Or, you know, then it's Brent Turville did it recently with, with Emma Thompson and he does the big screams in epiphany. Like George Hearn really, and I mean, Alan Carroll kind of does it in, in the LBC, but not to the extent George Hearn goes for it. I think ever since the people, because it's the pro shot, know George Hearn so well that he does kind of have this slight stamp on things that it's hard to not think of George Hearn in this role. I mean, I remember when they were going to do the 2007 film, people were mad that George Hearn was not cast as Sweeney, even though by that point he was like mid-60s, early 70s. Because he's like 90-something now, or close to 90 years hmm. old now. Like, so the fact that like people are like, yeah, we want George back. It's like, no, we, like, we can get Johnny Depp. We can get somebody else in this part. <clears throat> like, you know, it doesn't always have to be George Hearn. Even though who, I looked at his filmography. He yeah. has been Sweeney, like, every decade. Oh, George. Yes, he has. <laughs> Yeah. I'm well, just like, okay, well, oh, well, he, he did it again. It was supposed to be Sweeney in the Patti LuPone concert. It was supposed to be somebody else and they dropped out because they didn't learn the music in time. So they called George Hinn because um, his body. he could just fill the role and he was <laughs> like a last minute replacement for, yeah. for that concert and it worked. But uh, no, he's no, like, even like his scene where Michael brings up when he finds out that he's killed Lucy, the moment where he's really shaking the body. Mm-hmm. Like does break your heart, and then he does such a great turn where it's shaking loose, and then it's just a Mrs. Lovett, you're a cunning wonder, and then he then he like turns his focus on Mrs. Lovett, like the mad animal, and it's like Angela's reaction with the big eyes is just, oh, <laughs> he's coming right at me now. I'm screwed. Whatever, whatever he's gonna do to me, like I'm done for. It's great, but I love Angela in this role, and Gabby's absolutely right. They went to her first. And said, we want to do Sweeney Todd. And we have this role, Mrs. Love, that we want you to do. And I and basically, Sondheim met with her. And Angela came up with a lot of ideas for the Mrs. Lovett character that have stayed with the role. And Angela did such a good job of playing that manic energy in this piece. Like, she's always doing something. Like, no matter what she's doing, whether she's cleaning the apron, or even just the way she shuffles up and down the stairs, and does the hello, your honor, my lord, you know, as like she's going. It's like just that fleeting little energy she has for her. But at the same time, the wheels are always turning in, in her, where she is always thinking of what's my next play to get what I want. Cause it's like you see the minute that like she sees Pirelli's body in the trunk and she goes, that's a lot of blood. You can see behind that, she's thinking, she's already got the idea of Pirelli's going to become a meat pie. And just mm. that, like, you watch her performance and it's just so amazingly cunning. And even when, like, after she finishes Poor Thing and she, tell, and she tells Sweeney she poisoned herself arsenic from, from the apothecary around the corner, tried to stop her, I did. You see that her choice of not going further saying she survived. But you don't catch it the first time because it goes by so fast. But if you watch enough times, like I'm sure Jeremy and I have done, you watch just the eyes and the facial expressions because George reacts so quickly to she took poison and he cuts her off. And Mrs. Lovett doesn't stop. She stops her and just goes, okay. Like, I don't got to say any more to him today. I've set the trap for him that he's like, I got him. 
like like Lucy's out of the way. And also the one thing I, I miss with Angel's performance is once you realize the beggar woman is Lucy, I would have loved a bit more dynamic between the two of them because there are scenes interactions between Lovett and Lucy as the beggar yeah. woman. And you realize just how horrible Mrs. Lovett is because she's like actively turning this woman away from like there because, you know, shows up for asking for a pie. No, she tries to get into the pie shop later on in act two. Like, like, like Toby chase. Throw the, the old out. woman out. Yeah. Throw the old yeah, woman yeah. out. Like, <laughs> like once you realize who the beggar woman is, you go, oh my God, Mrs. Lovett really is evil for what she does to, to Lucy. Who, you know, because I, I picture what happened is Lucy takes the poison. She lies in bed, like like Lovett says, and then, you know, Mrs. Lovett turfs her out on the street. Uh, you know, so it's like, she's a cold character once you actually realize this, the order of events that take place in the show. And the cunningness of Mrs. Lovett is shown so well in Angel Lansbury that I'm just in love with the role of Mrs. Lovett. She is the star. We actually built in, I'm just going to say, just going back just a little mm-hmm. bit, like we built in a couple of extra little, just mm-hmm. little teeny love at beggar woman yeah. moments, especially in, in City on Fire, Joanna, that sequence. Yeah. Just like in the, sort of that time when Lucy just can't, just has so much to say, but can't, but is like mm-hmm. becoming more and more aware. And just these, we built in a few of these little circlings of around each other just to be like, I know. And <laughs> for me, from both yeah. ends, you know, me yeah. saying, I know, and her saying, I know, and I'm going to kill you. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I'll get rid of you one way. Yeah. And no one would know because the beggar woman can't say anything. Mm-hmm. She's gone mad. Scream and people think, yeah, yeah, she's gone mad. Yeah. yeah. But has she, though? I mean, I think beggar woman sees the truth. I think it's the opposite. She actually goes through the show and becomes more and more sane. She becomes mm-hmm. more lucid throughout the show. Yeah. The moment when she is the clearest, when mm-hmm. she sees Joanna in front of her mm-hmm. and knows everything, mm-hmm. that's the moment that she has to die. Yeah. Lucid Lucy. Ah. Lucid Lucy. Ooh. Lucid Lucy. There we go. All right. But it's not just George and Angela in this production, even though I'm sure they could have held the show, just the two of them playing all the roles. But there is a great ensemble behind them. So, Jill, since you went last, in the last question, I'll let you kick this one off. Of Who else stood up to you in this cast? So I kind of have two. I have one and then I have like a fun one, I guess. So (laughs) I want to shout out Ken Jennings as Tobias Regg. Oh, Tobias too. Yeah, I think his physicality and vocal work that he placed upon this character was brilliant. He kind of represents, right, like the lower tier, like lower generation. He is lusting for Mrs. Lovett. So I just like this jovial kind of like hobbling around physicality matched with his the tone of his voice was so eerie. Just it's it kind of like a prepubescent boy, but also like scre- like like there was like a screechiness to it. And to me, that even paid off more when you see him at the end and he has just gone stark mad. I just, I really liked the way he was kind of boiling all of the, what he was doing as the actor to really hit that last very like Mm -hmm. deer in a headlight moment, like kind of like a walking zombie essentially is is what I got from that scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's funny. We were talking about like, oh, like where's the small moments. And I think he did such a good job of like, I could see the wheels turning in his almost like actor brain of I am 
lusting for love it like again this prepubescent boy who also needs a mate like a maternal figure like there were just so many like things going underneath his his character so yeah like hats off to ken jennings and then i want to shout out i'm pretty sure it was walter charles as the passerby that's our like token (laughs) bass baritone man right yes the lead the lead balladeer who starts the show right I love these musicals where there's the epic choral numbers where everyone is just standing, singing. And shout out to the bass baritones. There, it's just such this like amazing sort of like bowl of sound that has to be like that has to exist in the chorus. And in this like this piece where everything is so weighted and grotesque. Like, and I think even the pro shot kind of really did some close-ups on his face through a lot of these, mm-hmm. a lot of the choral numbers. Mm-hmm. It just like, yeah, it like really shook my core. Mm-hmm. So like shout out to the basses and baritones too. It's like, we need you and you really do, especially in this piece, flavor it up in those moments. So mm-hmm. thank you, Walter Charles. <laughs> I love it. Michael, I see you nodding along. So where do you I stand? Would, <clears throat> I was, I would agree with, with you about, Tobias, like it was one of the things, like I was really watching the performance at the very end and thinking, oh, this guy's real good. Like this is, like, I really, really appreciated that performance. And I started to realize it's sort of also where the whole, sort of like Pippin does, where you go mm-hmm. from one place and you get someplace completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's, it's, okay, I have a point, it'll all make sense. I'm just going to say this backwards. So. When Joanna first starts singing, uh, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know the actors' names, but and Lindenford, I was first of all yeah. like, what the heck is this key? And second of all, I was thinking, because it's so much higher than anything I'm used to hearing, but maybe, I don't know if it was the quality of the recording or if it was something that she was actually doing, but her eyes looked like three times the size of Angela Lansbury's from the <laughs> distance. So yeah. it made me feel like the all these versions of Joanna singing that song beautifully mm-hmm. not saying that there was anything bad about this but it was just this was cartoonish to me and then wrapping up at the very 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 end with joanna dressed as the sailor that was all wiped away and she was like hung right down into a completely different person and mm-hmm. it made me appreciate just much like with what ken jenny that's what you said with his name right um mm-hmm. not, the, not the same guy as jeopardy is it the same guy no it's not but that's funny uh, could you imagine funny. Could you imagine? But anyway, but it's just, it made me appreciate a little bit more this, what I would say feels like an over-the-top version of Sweeney, even though it's mm-hmm. the way it should be, the way it is, as they sort of wrapped up into something much more solemn at the end. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I particularly noticed it with Tobias and with Joanna. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Gabby? I, Michael, I completely agree about Joanna, I sort of like didn't really connect to her in this production at all. And I think that Greenfinch has a lot to do with that. And so then I didn't really care that much about their relationship. And that's just such an important part of this story. Now, luckily, Angela and George are so um, phenomenal. It didn't matter all that much to Mm -hmm. me. But with lesser Sweeney's and Lovett's, that could be 
you know, more problematic. But anyway, mm. I would, okay, so I would like to shout out, okay, I've got the list up here, Calvin Remsberg, who plays the Beatle. Mm-hmm. I thought he was wonderful. Like, I thought mm. the Beatle is such an, is such a weird part that, to be honest, I don't really understand all that well, even after doing it and seeing mm-hmm. it and just like, just not really, really, you know, like there are lots of ins that different actors and different people have with this show. Like he's, the Beatle is not a character that brings me in necessarily, what? you know, <laughs> what? No, no, but like, I don't really get the point. Like, I don't really, I don't really get the point of this character other than the fact that they're police authority in connection to the judge and all that, you know what I mean? Like other than just literally what their purpose is in the story. I really enjoyed watching this actor. I thought he was so likable, which made me enjoy his performance that much more. I thought his singing voice was beautiful. Like for mm-hmm. such a small role, I really thought he did an mm-hmm. excellent, excellent job with it in a way that I appreciated more just because I'd never really noticed a beetle standing out to me before. Mm. So that's my shout out. And literally, it's so funny, tell that you mentioned the passerby or the first singer of the show because literally... I tend the tale of Sweeney Todd happened. I turned to Jar. I went, our Sweeney understudy, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I feel like the person that sings that first line is more often than not the Sweeney understudy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he actually just passed away recently. Oh. Yeah. And he was one of the OG members of 1776, that musical. He was, oh my God. He was part of that cast as well. Like he actually did, I forget his name though, but he's wonderful. He's wonderful. But Gabby, I'll piggyback off you though. <laughs> Sorry, can um, I just tag on to Gabby's beetle? Can, his velvet suit was, I was obsessed. Oh, that suit like, is like velvet no, um, incredible. And also just quick hot take, beetle being in love with Judge Turpin or having a crush <laughs> on Judge Turpin. Let's add some more sex to the mix. Back to you, Matt. Why not? Why not? Well, Jill, I mean, you kind of stole some plot points of mine. Uh, oh, no. Because I am also a big beetle lover. Who, the wonderful Calvin Remsberg as the Beatle. This so watching this production again for this was the first time he really stood out to me as the Beatle. And as Guy was said, this is not a role everybody like gravitates to, but he's such a key cog in the wheel because he is the judge's muscle, basically. Because you don't have. Judge Turpin doing what he does to Lucy without the Beatle being there first to get her out of the house, you know? And so I love how Calvin plays this role with such a smarmy air of superiority that he knows where his bread is buttered, which is being the judge's right-hand man. And he stands right behind him like Prince Philip did to the Queen all those years and just walks a few feet behind and does whatever the judge needs him to do to make sure the judge gets what he wants. And it's such a great, subtle performance. Because if you watch him in the scene where it's right before ladies in their sensitivities and the judge is sentencing that man to prison, and he's standing right behind the judge in that scene. And so he, you watch his face in that, and it's so smug and just nasty, where it's like, used to represent everything that we see wrong with the police force today of these type of people who absolutely abuse their power because that's what they do, you know? 
And Jill, yes, you said the velvet suit is a perfect encapsulation of that character of just that smarmy velvety material that's purple, a royal color that you know he bought because it was purple and it shows off his class and his in his ascension to a certain level within the system. So that's that there. And then uh so yeah, so then you have that and then it is also just his size. Like Calvin was not a small man. So he looks like a Santa Claus with his beard and he's so jovial and friendly. But then in a minute later, he snaps and breaks a bird's neck. And it's terrifying. <laughs> and it's like, now I see how he works in the community where the community sees him as this righteous man who walks around the square with Pirelli there, you know, you know, will Beale Bamford be the judge? Glad as always to oblige my friends and neighbors. Like you see that air he puts on in the community. But then at the same time, he turns around and will absolutely beat somebody up for the judge or get rid of them and get them out of their way. No problem. Like just like that scene outside Fogg's Asylum where he chases Anthony off and kind of does and kind of get, disposes of him. It's great. And I will say he actually just passed away at age 72 in 2022. And he actually directed four productions of Sweeney Todd, including the concert version with Kelsey Grammer and Christine Baranski. And he was in the OG um, Los Angeles cast of Phantom of the Opera and Cats. So he had a long and very storied career. He was the OG Old Deuteronomy uh, in, the, in, in LA. So there you go. Nice. That is the wonderful Kelvin Remsburg. Oh, wow. Jeremy, who do you have? I'm going to give some love to a completely unlovable character. I think Edmund Lindek as Judge Turpin, mm. his voice is so good. Yes. At, especially in the pretty women sequences and through kiss me some of these sequences and even without having they cut the judges joanna which i i honestly think is fine i think the, the piece works fine without it but it is such a moment of like here's this person being super creepy and justifying <laughs> why they have to get killed and turning our sort of villainous anti-hero into kind of a hero mm -hmm. because these guys are even worse than him. Mm -hmm. So having someone that can be so rotten that you are cheering for mm -hmm. his death is not easy. <laughs> and I think Edmund does it extremely well mm -hmm. and with very minimal time to do it because yeah. his because the big number that the judge normally has isn't in this pro shot version. He's only got like the scene after Greenfinch and Leonard Bird, the mm -hmm. sequence of Kiss Me. He doesn't have a lot of time to establish that this is our villainous villain and we need to do that. I think he does a good job getting that mm -hmm. strong and quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And then being such a great, like him just leaving his head back, and he's just <laughs> watching George just getting the lather ready. Yeah. Yeah. Makes for some of the most exciting moments in the show, I think. Yes. And he is the OG Judge Turpin. Like yeah. He was the OG Broadway Judge Turpin. So just like Angela, he and the actor who played Tobias, the three of them were like OGs. So they've all had a chance to really hone that craft. And you're right. Like he is someone who is absolutely captivating as a villain of this piece. Yeah. Like he's so smart. Just the way he says the word muslin gown just <laughs> makes you just, oh. 
Like he's and I like the little affectation he has of sometimes what. What? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? What was that? What? I love. I love that little. When yeah. he does that, it just brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. All right. What was our favorite production or design element? Gabby, I'll let you start this one. Without question, the moving staircases. Mm. For me, I just thought that as like you know the sort of obvious answer is going to be the unit itself which was Mm -hmm. which was so um, amazing but like what i when i notice like i know something affects me when i Mm -hmm. know notice it that sounds like a Mm -hmm. dumb answer but you know like just in that whole ladies in their sense just in that entire sequence with Mm -hmm. the judge and the beetle walking through Mm -hmm. town and all of the ensemble members seamlessly putting these staircases on the Mm -hmm. set it was just gorgeous to watch mm-hmm. and i like really kind commend. of appearing before them yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly it just turned this very simple set actually mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the entire london town mm-hmm. and it just gave it so much depth and dimension i thought it was so effective and you mm-hmm. needed to kind of see them it's like the west wing walk and talk you know like you need to sort of see them on yeah. the move this is not mm-hmm. like they're not standing having like mm-hmm. a serious conversation about this. It's casual. It's like mm-hmm. this. And so I just thought it was so yeah. effective how they yeah. how they use that. That was honestly mm-hmm. like my standout moment, yeah. my standout design element for me. Yeah. Gabby, I'll piggyback because I also had the set, which was designed by Eugene Lee, who all, who won a Tony for his set in this, as well as he designed the set for Wicked. And he uh, well, uh, and he also won the Tony for that one too. And actually, if you look at the Wicked set, it's a lot of bridges and staircases that get moved around. I was going to say, that's so interesting because yeah, I would not think of Wicked as being a set heavy show. Mm-hmm. It's like a lighting heavy show. I would say yeah. more than a set heavy show, you know, mm-hmm. but that's so interesting. Yes. And he also was the production designer for Saturday Night Live from its premiere in 1975 until his death this year in February. So he has done a very long Career, but he did take how Prince's direction of wanting to have the set in this world be like the industrial factories of London at this time. Mm -hmm. And he ran with it. Like just the way with the bridges and the stairs, he really captures that tight, claustrophobic energy of London in that time period where it's all side alleys and twisty streets Mm -hmm. of cobblestone. Mm -hmm. You feel like, Gabby, as you said, just that one scene of kiss me part two with with, with, the, with with the judge and the beetle walking and you have joanna and anthony on the couch uh, that's like, where it is sorry not ladies in their sense it's, yeah. it's it's kiss me that's what i was thinking of sorry. yes yeah no no all good but it's just yeah like just the way they choreograph that with his set and the staircases it just works so well and even down to his choice of bake oven for mrs lovett that big rusty and Inferno machine that is just terrifying because you could imagine just because you see Miss Lovett carrying those buckets of bones that she's burning in that fire and just the size of it just you just go oh my goodness did Eugene Lee ever capture the world of Sweeney where it's big but it also is simple but also feels like a big industrial factory where he didn't rely on turntables he like him and how really you can tell they really work together to create a set that was powered by humans 
because it's the cogs in the factory of that industrial revolution that was happening where the poor was coming into the city and were just put to the machine, literally churned out and spit out in so many different ways. And the fact that you see how well Hal and Eugene just walked like cogs in a wheel together and churned and created such a beautiful set together. And also he designed the iconic Sweeney chair. I mean, that is no small feat to safely create that chair that pops down. You go through the trap door, uh, like, like into that. I'm assuming there's like a pad they hit uh, in, in that house. But it's just designing that I'm sure took a lot of time and a lot of effort to get that right. So This is making me, have, I need to do a thesis on the similarities between Sweeney and Little Shop. Because like uh-huh. eating the eating of the plant, mm-hmm. like literally when we did it at Stafford, I went down a slide and there was a crash pad. Like these mm-hmm. are, there are all too many similar things yeah. um, for these two shows. Anyway. I'm sure uh, Howard Ashman was heavily influenced by Sweeney because he was such a musical lover himself. Like even actually uh, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you can tell that Sweeney influenced the set of Hamilton with that kind of catwalk with the bridges and the stairs. It's like, yep, I see where the Miranda got a lot of inspiration because there's a mm-hmm. lot of Sweeney and Hamilton as well. Jill. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Put the water down. Okay. My favorite uh, production element was the makeup and slash special mm. effects. Again, realizing this pro shot is in the early 80s. Mm-hmm just thought it kind of like to me stood out like ahead of its time in using like the specificity of makeup and special effects so i guess you just talked about the chair mac that was brilliant i was like oh my gosh and also just like the noodliness of the actors bodies going down there i was like wow you guys nailed that with probably not much like reference to go off of that right <laughs> anyone yeah. else who has to do a noodle chair slide they're like watch this pro shot of sweeney and that's how you do it <laughs> i can't imagine but, like pre-show safety rehearsals to do that oh yeah the yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but even just like the slice across the neck like i'm assuming mm-hmm. the blood spurt from the knife like it was the prop yes, yes, came yes, from yes, the knife because yeah, he tilts the oh, knife so just brilliant out. and then it comes that's out it. in like such like a rectangular thing i was like there it is you cut your neck that's all we need and again watching it as a pro shot right we get spoiled mm-hmm. we see that up close and personal mm-hmm. which is talked about that of like being a pro shot audience versus live audience you get mm-hmm. different tastes mm-hmm. And then we've talked about this too, of the makeup, for example, with Lovett and with George, like look at George behind Mackenzie's shoulder right now. Like I watched (laughs) this pro shot with Ryan of the cup and Ryan was like, oh my God, it looks like he's wearing a mask. Like, I think they did such a good job of just like really modeling his skin and like his sunken in eyes. Like it really, yeah, it exteriorly showed how he was interiorly feeling. And then similar with Lovett of like caking it on and you know, so I guess like dramaturgically, the makeup was spot mm-hmm. on. But then in contrast, all of our oral members, the like the smudge and the dirt and the grime, um, and they don't have very much makeup, which again, I really liked that change in Pendulum sw- Swing. We have these just like plain everyday people, mm-hmm. like absolutely rugged and gross. And yeah, I just... Hats off to the makeup department, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Well, we've talked about the chair. I think, like, set and 
production elements that elicit like laughs or reactions from the audience. Like you can't get enough of those. And like when people like the first attempt, I think it's in God That's Good, where the chair is delivered and we see the mechanic of this is wonderful and hilarious. But then it's during Joanna, the reprise, the, the trio where the first person gets killed and sent down this slide. It's right. just so funny. It's so funny, the, the, the like speed at which they fly down this slide. <laughs> so well designed. And talking about costume, I also, co some of the costumes, in particular, Angela Lansbury's act two, God, that's good, like. Yeah, that red shimmer dress. That red kind of lame is <laughs> lovely ladies looking thing. Yeah. Like <laughs> this is her, the fanciest thing that she's ever worn. She looks kind of like a prostitute. It's the fanciest thing yeah. that she's ever had. And I love that transformation to see her like coming into her own and the way that the costumes did such a good job. Like, and we talked about Beatles uh, suit already. Those particular costumes of showing people uh, at Pirelli as well, that green kind of Italian, almost military it's looking out. skin, yeah. Yeah, some of these outfits that show what people are trying to project they mm -hmm. are. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the wardrobes, I think, does a great job of that, too. Mm -hmm. I love it. Michael, take us home. Well, you know, given that this was, again, sort of going back to my theme of this isn't how we did it, is that just, I mean, and now I don't want to knock our production that we have that for but at the same time we, we in our we had a lot of things were suggested so we didn't have a chair we had we we more ethereally carried people down a staircase uh mm -hmm. we didn't have blood we didn't have it's, there were a lot of we didn't, we, didn't, we did have we had they were pies <laughs> um, <laughs> come on matt yeah, well, they were pie, pie. Um, but we didn't, but like we didn't have an oven. You know, there was a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that was suggested. So when we were, when I was watching this, I was like, that's what a chair looks like. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how it looks like. That's what that's how they do it. Because I mean, I'm not that green to the whole thing, but it's true. I mean, like I just, mm -hmm. there were a couple, I remember sitting there and just hitting the, the rewind button, like the, you know, go back 10 seconds button yeah. over and over again, just so I could watch the chair. Again and again, just to see. Okay, oh, when does that flip up? When does the floor open? Did mm. he, does he open the floor? Does the floor happen automatically? And then, and it, I didn't catch that there was actually, like, I, initially when he seemed my friend, and the knives are like this big. You can't see this big. I'm like, <laughs> they, or the razors rather. Do they really have to be that big? And then later on, when I saw that they actually produce blood, it's like, oh, because there's a reservoir in there. Mm -hmm. um, clever. So I had to go. I was watching and wait, what, what happened there? And then I, again, re reviewed and go, so, and I think I just saw the, the blood effect and I thought, are they seeing that in row N? But I don't really know. But I think for me, it's, I guess, of all the awe that I got from watching a complete production of the show where they spent money, no offense to our production, we, I think it was just, I think the one thing that got me the most was really the razor. Mm -hmm. It was just... It didn't need to produce blood, but it did. And it, like at one point he was holding it up and there was blood on it. But no one can see that, but I can. And it was really <laughs> worth it. So yes, that's bad. Yes. And also I love the fact they had real, they had pies. That the actors could actually eat on stage. Like just watching George Hurt mm -hmm. actually have to eat the pie during Worst Pies in London 
Oh, yes. when he Such spits it out, I love yeah. just yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. it fly yeah. out of yeah. his mouth. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. Is it weird that yeah. as the show we went on? What? I just wanted meat pie as the show went on. I really just wanted to eat pie. That's yes. is, am I bad? <laughs> that's that's a little bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> the worst pies. Yes. 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 All right. Let's get into the next question though. What was the weakest aspect of the production? Was there one? Michael, you said you had an interesting idea for this question that we can all bounce off of. So we'll let you I don't know. Okay, well, I do believe, okay, I think anybody here should agree, but I might point at Gabby, and forgive me, I don't know if I don't know everybody's histories enough, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna point at Gabby the most on this because would you agree, for example, you look at the writing of vocal parts in shows, they're becoming harder and harder and harder to, to do. Like they did define gravity. So everything has to be like, then after Wicked, you'd have like Bonnie and Clyde where it seems like they just tried to write another musical that, that people could sing higher, bigger, whatever. <laughs> I saw Phantom of the Opera years after it came out. I wasn't blown away by it. Whereas when it first came out, the chandelier, you know, like mm-hmm. I feel like because of the, and also in a world where things that are cartoonish, you look at the difference between the Marvel comic universe and the DC universe, the way mm-hmm. that it's got it's changed over the years and gotten with Christopher Nolan so much darker. From my taste and experience, um, I just it it leans into the fact that I I just grown accustomed to things being a certain way and striving mm-hmm. for a certain thing in theater that. There's a lot of stuff in this production that I just found off-putting. Like, go back to the singing of Pretty Women, for example. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time getting through that without choking up on a daily basis because of when because I took it as a moment when those two people, not just the actors, but the characters, need to find a commonality in what they're doing. And so, musically speaking. I want to have the most locked in music harmony possible. Mm-hmm. I agree, but they weren't. And mm-hmm. like, and and I found there's a lot of the places where the music of this, where people could were, could have been more in sync and they weren't. And maybe that was the style of this production. Great. But for me, it was off-putting because I lost, I, I found maybe if, if I was to rewatch it, then I would have a better time and get used, more used to it. And maybe it, it, like if you want to talk about it metaphorically speaking, then maybe it's the cogs that are not coming together. And that's a good, that was intentional. I don't know. Mm. But for me, it's stuff like the music when it didn't just ring and sing the way that I really wanted to it, I found came across as weak to me for my absorption of it. Also, there were choreographic moments that I was noticing that were just very, they just felt messy to me where I'm used to these days things needing to be, if they're going to be, if they're going to be messy, then you know that they were meant to be messy, mm-hmm. whereas this just felt like it was poorly danced. Mm-hmm. That's, But again, it, it could just be me. It could be a stylistic change of 40 years of musical theater that have gone by and different directors, choreographers, whoever is producing these productions have a different level of taste or, dare I say, concept of what excellent means to them. And mm-hmm. to me, there's a lot of excellence from what my standard is in my head, based on what I think I know about the world, and I really don't know a lot, I feel like it in some ways just wasn't excellent to me. Mm. Mm. Fair. Gabby, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, 
Well, okay. So I'll, I'll sort of like, I want to respond to like, to that. I want to, you know, talk about what Michael just said a little bit, because it's really uh, amazing points and just really interesting talking points as well. I think that a lot of what you are saying, and this is actually my opinion of what the weakest aspect of this production was, is what we were talking about before about it being shot as a pro shot, but performed as a as a the mm -hmm. theatrical performance in a large space. I think that we are losing a lot of the in mm -hmm. direct what they were actually going for in the production when we are viewing this as a pro shot, including vocals, I think, because there is different mixing that happens for a pro shot. Like they are not, this is not theater amplification. This is camera and they are wearing, you know, like whatever mm -hmm. they were doing, it's different. It's different. It's going to come across differently when you are, when I am recording in a booth, it's very different than when I'm singing in a theater. Mm -hmm. And so what we're hearing is booth quality with mm -hmm. theatrical performance. And so I think that even though that's just the nature of what we're watching, that is in essence what the weakest thing was for me is that some of the things were not matching. I also, mm -hmm. to your point about like the history of how musicals have been performed, I, I think you're onto something here in that like i think that there's a, a more modern way that we are experiencing musicals is extremely actor driven and that's not to say that these are not some of the most brilliant actor theater actors of all time but i think that in a slightly more dated musical theater world that it is about the vocals, the blasty vocals, and not necessarily mm. about the like the nuances of acting beats in mm -hmm. a song. Necessarily. Now, Sondheim, of course, puts that on its head because all he's doing is like acting through song in his songs. <laughs> but that being said, he's also getting like you know, it's like that that you know, with the lamest concerts or whatever. Like the like Sweeney Todd these days also is done with like opera singers. You know, like yeah. where these are just the types of. Mm. This, these are, that's what this score was sort of written for is like very operatic performances. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what we're watching is a really theatrical version of musical theater. Now, to argue that when we look at a more sort of naturalistic, let's call it that version, like, like the Johnny Depp, Helena Bonham Carter version, it, I'm not sure it does work. So. Uh, mm. So I, I'm not sure if that argument actually mm. like makes sense, but I think that what you're experiencing is these two things coming together that mm -hmm. don't necessarily work together. And that's mm -hmm. film and theater. <laughs> They're not the same <laughs> thing. And we're experiencing both and it's mm -hmm. confusing at times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so much in there. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Jeremy? This, I think, like, is part of a trio of Sweeney, the Sunday in the Park with George, yep. and the Into the Woods. I think they film, yep. they did a really good job of capturing theater mm -hmm. on stage in, in this production. Like, it feels like you're, like, watching a theater show. Like, it doesn't, mm -hmm. it never veers into, I think I'm watching a film. Mm -hmm. So I think it's successful in that. I do agree, though, for 
It particularly, I noticed it in Kiss Me Part 2 in that sequence where when a lot of people start singing, you lose the individuals. A lot of individuals kind of blip mm-hmm. out. So a few people kind of take over mm-hmm. and it's not as full as I imagine it would be mm-hmm. in the room. For me, though, the weakest overall part of it is the Anthony Joanna love story. It just doesn't, mm-hmm. I yeah. just, it doesn't, I don't care enough about either of them like it's the it's supposed to be that little glimmer of hope of like a hopeful future and Mm -hmm. i don't think that they're quite strong enough to stand Mm -hmm. out amidst everything else that's happening in this production Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's like i if it's it performers or the way that it's been put together that the emphasis is just never really enough on on their love story for it for Mm -hmm. me to hang my hat on like i'm really rooting for these Poor suckers who just can't seem to catch a break, no matter how they mm-hmm. do it. Um, so yeah, for me, that, that that's the one section of the show where I feel like the air kind of comes out of the tires a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll piggyback off you, Jerry, because that's my note too. Perfect. The Anthony and Joanna stuff just fell flat. I mean, the actor who played Anthony was trying. He actually did have some funny comedic moments during Kiss Me. And I was like, oh! There actually is more to your Anthony. You're not just, you know, bland Clark Kent. Uh, there actually is more to your Anthony there, but you never actually do anything with it. So, yeah, I mean, they just were like, yeah, you're right. It's like the souffle, the air coming out of the souffle, where they just didn't have any. I mean, I mostly think I'm so the way Tess played it in your production, Michael and Gabby, in the end, where due to her experiences of being locked in the asylum, witnessing the murder of the judge, suffering the abuse of the judge prior to being locked up, you know, the breakdown she had in your production really gave a bigger picture to who was Joanna as a character. This Joanna just doesn't seem phased by anything. It's like, hold on, you just shot a man in the asylum. You're on the run. You've been locked up for a year because she says, you promised to marry me. That was last August. So it wasn't like she's been there a few weeks. She's in there almost a year, at least. You know, so that does something to your head being put in. And this her asylum. up her upbringing with Judge Turpin. Like, who yeah. knows what's behind that door, too? Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, yeah well, they're well, and also goes to what Michael was saying before about just Green Finch specifically. We were mm-hmm. sort of, a few of us were saying, just that, like, that was already the end of the play. Like I saw her insanity. Like she was all, yes. she could have been in Bob's asylum while she was thinking. Yeah. Her, yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. 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 And I mean, like even in act two, when she does sing Greenfinch in the asylum, it sounds just like the act one Greenfinch. There's yeah, no yeah, yeah. changing character. Or it's like you, you're now the yeah. bird outside of the cage. Yeah. So like, yeah. what does that do to you? Right. It's yeah. also like Victorian women are in mm-hmm. so many stories. Mm-hmm. You are the bird in the cage. So when that yeah. cage door swings open and you get let out, mm-hmm. what are you doing? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I also just don't think the actress who played Joanne, I don't know, have her name off the top of my head. But there's a manicness, once again, in Joanna. Like, like Sondheim wrote it in the flatiness of the songs like Kiss Me, where it's like, wait, was that a gate? Was that a gate? Wait, I don't have a gate. It's like just that energy, that panicky energy that really feels like the bird flapping in the cage at all times just wasn't there. Like, there wasn't enough, di- like, 
diversity, I don't know what the right word is, but differences in the performance mm-hmm. to show mm-hmm. when she goes to that manic panic to when she's actually enjoying the time with Anthony. Because she's a sexually repressed, locked up teenage girl, you know? Mm-hmm. So, of course, so I mean, I totally get why she'd be throwing herself at Anthony. He's the first boy that's actually given her probably notice. He's in their house. They're on her couch. You know, like, go Joanna. But it's like, there was not enough character layers to show the different ping-ponging that goes on, which then lets down Anthony. It's like, hey, well, dude, why are you falling for her? Like, what is it about her? Because she's seeing like a maniac there, you know? Like, she's not, like, enticing you in, you know? So, I don't know. Mm. For me, I just felt that relationship was just, as Jeremy said, bland. That's where, like, the wheels kind of came off a bit. Jill, wrap us out in this Yeah, section. honestly, it's putting kind of like a concluding statement on what everyone has said here. Of And I think that I've danced around this in a lot of my answers already, too, is there wasn't enough pendulum swing of character for each character. Like we talked about how Ken Jennings as Tobias, we saw that, you know, and with, but for example, you like you just said, with Anthony and Joanna, like, where is that going? Like, if you're up, 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 then where is your low, 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 low? Like, mm-hmm. where is that pendulum going? And I think that just would add such more of the cacophony. We talk about these staircases swirling around, like all of these. Mm-hmm. And also, again, paying homage to Sondheim of like, people are elaborate. People are these swinging pendulums. We go from one to the other. Mm-hmm. We all have that inside of us, you know? not just the demon barber of Fleet Street. So I think that flavor, and I think a lot of, potentially a lot of this maybe could have been fixed. And this is the weakest Mm -hmm. element for me was like through the staging. And I've talked about this too of like, and again, maybe you're right, Gabby, of like amending it for it being a pro shot. But there was a lot of like, like uh, what, for example, like when George, like with the beggar woman, I don't like that the direct, maybe the direction or the choice there is Mm -hmm. he kind of looks at her. Like to me, I don't want you to look her in the face until she's laying in your basement, you know, like, and then similar with the, with Joanna and Anthony on the couch. I'm like, where is the like chemistry? Like, why are you sitting on the couch like this? And there's one moment where like they were going to kiss and didn't kiss, but then later on in the musical, they're like running away on the run. And then all of a sudden they lean back and kiss. I'm like, okay, why are you doing just like a fleeting kiss? Like it just, to me, this, this staging wasn't intentional. And I, I, in some moments for me, and I wonder if that, again, kind of what Michael was saying, like, was that part of the reason what, like this sort of dissonance of, or very like robotic way of showing this piece? I think like, I would have loved to see in your guys' production, because I do think this is a type of musical that could really afford some, like, not necessarily updating, but, like, overhauling of, like, really sifting out, like, who are these people in today, today's day and age, you know? And, like, why, again, it's the classic thing, like, why pl- this play? Why now? Right? And, like, we've talked about it already in other responses of, like, the sex, like sexual chemistry, the, you know, sussing out different traumas, like this pendulum swinging of humans that it, it seemed it was lacking a little bit for me. Like, I guess in mostly in mm-hmm. the rigid staging really kind of hit that home for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will say from my studying of the show, there was a big push and pull because Sondheim wanted it to be a more intimate production originally. 
but he couldn't get Hal Prince to sign on it until he agreed to do a bigger, broader, industrialized production. So I think that's what we're also getting to is there's a lot of Hal Prince in this, which I love to go to New York and read the Hal Prince notes that are in the archives in New York, because they do have all Hal Prince's director notes archived away that you can actually go and rent and read. Wow. So I'm sure there's more <laughs> details in there about just about what he was going through directorially in the process. Because Jeremy's like, yeah, Gabby, we're going to New York. <laughs> that sounds so cool. That's, I, know, I didn't I know saw, that was a I thing. The, That's amazing. The itinerary the was it going on. Yeah. Go see Josh Groban in, in Annalie Ashford as Lovin uh, and Sweeney. And then go to the Hal Prince Library and read up on his notes. There, like, there, there's a whole weekend right there for you. He's yeah. so excited. Go get a pie. Yeah. And then get a pie. And then get a pie. Shave a pie. And then get a pie. Yeah. Yes. Actually, fun. Okay. Fun quick fact about the pies that we have. Do you, so a lot of people usually have the pies where it's like in the tin. But if you watch Mrs. Lovett's pies, they're actually the proper English pies that have the crust that you would hold almost like a sandwich. The reason mm. why you, the reason why they did like that was because coal miners would take those pies with them for lunches in the coal mines and their hands would be covered in coal. So they would hold the crust to eat the pie and then would toss the crust away and the coal dust would knock it on the rest of the pie and poison them. So there is why that there, there's, there, nice. there's why the pies are served almost like pizza pockets in the production. So mm. there you go. Fun facts about pie making. All right. Would we recommend this production to others? Jill, as our sweetie virgin, where do you stand on this? Yeah, I would say sure. I'm usually an easy sell for this question because I'm like, why not? You know, like Mm -hmm. take in any type of or version of anything. And, you know, we talked about our titular characters, like giving us something to chew on and more so in some moments. And sure, are there subjective things I didn't like about this piece? Yes. But I think from a vocal, a score perspective, a flavor of what Sondheim musicals in particular, like the difficulty and the intricacy of that, I think you have that all going on here. But like everything else, like don't just watch this version, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe it have it be an entryway, but expand your horizons. Love that. Love that. Love that. Michael, where do you stand? I mean, I would never say no. I mean, I just like there's, I basically would sort of echo what Jill was saying, just that I think it's a great educational piece, I suppose, as a mm-hmm. snapshot of history, like a, a moment of musical theater in history. I think it's great to have seen it, but I'm also, I love remakes. <laughs> it's a, that's again, I'm, good ones, good ones. Mm-hmm. Like I loved seeing updates because, you know, this was a great something. At a time. And I think that the show, I haven't seen the most recent iteration of it, but I think that once you get a chance to reinterpret something, you can find new ways into it and new things to discover all the time. And, but it was fun. It's fun to see. I would never say don't watch this, but am I going to say, oh, you've got to see the 1982 Mm -hmm. version of the Beth? I may not do that. Fair, 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 fair. Gabby? Like, obviously, yes. I'm mm-hmm. a big yes. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like, like not necessarily for, like, the production as a whole. Like, what Jill and everyone was saying, mm-hmm. like, w- go see productions of it. Go watch mm-hmm. other versions of it. 
But the main reason I would recommend this production is for mostly Angela Lansbury and then George Hearn. Like just to mm. say like, these are your like Sweeney and Mrs. Lovitz. Like these are, mm. watch it for that. Like for just mm. to have an appreciation of where this musical came from and all of the, you know, subsequent productions of it are inspired I think we can, we're sort of arguing. I know there's some, a little bit of, of dichotomy in, in that, but like that, that the George mm-hmm. Hearn is sort of our like classic Sweeney, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to even Len Carrier who originated it. But like that, I would recommend it mostly for those two. Like if anything else, just watch mm-hmm. it to see those two legendary mm-hmm. performances. Mm-hmm. Love it. Jeremy? Yeah, I think this is still like the definitive Sweeney Todd. Like this for me is, this is the, it strikes the balance of comedy so well because Mm -hmm. it's so funny. And then it's also like, then you get the fury and the terror and and all the anger that that Mm -hmm. comes with it. And even just talking today with all of you, I just realized like there's so many references to cages and traps and everyone is setting traps mm-hmm. for other people they're pl- like all of the machinations all the letter mm-hmm. writing and duplicity that goes mm-hmm. on just how much of a theme like more than almost anything else i think that's an arc of the show that of people the best laid plans that everyone has and how they all kind of fall apart but I think that this this production in particular just strikes the tone between the gruesome horror elements and the light, kind of lighthearted campiness as well. I, I think that this just the two play off each other so nicely. I would recommend this to anyone to learn what this show is mm-hmm. and then continue to explore all of the gutters and alleys that are in the script and the mm-hmm. lyrics and the music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's what you were saying about like all the cages and, and traps and everything. Like, I just so appreciate then there's a song called Wait, like <laughs> with traps and et, like et, everything like that all around the stage. And then there's a song Obsessed? called Wait. What yeah. tension? What tension? Yeah. Like, just brilliant. Um, really? Max, before you round us out, just to kind of uh, Jeremy saying like there's so many references, like, Gabby, you were saying Little Shop has been floating around your head. Uh, Mackers has been floating around mine as well. I think there's a lot of parallel between Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Mm -hmm. and Lady M and Mackers. So that would be a really cool, like, parallel essay deep dive. Titus, too. Yeah, there you go. How many Mm -hmm. Shakespearean tragic flavors do we have in this pie? Right? Exactly. But I mean, I will just say, yeah, absolutely. This musical, this production is the one that got me hooked on Sweeney and Sondheim. It was like, it's the perfect entry into this. Cause I mean, I love studying the part, but it also is a bit insidey baseball where you need to have a bit of Sondheim under your belt. You have to have heard a bit of Sondheim to fully appreciate the beauty of Sunday in the park. Company is also a bit odd because it's not linear. It's, jumping it's vignettes so into the woods is another really great entry point i'd say yeah. into the woods or sweeney are two kind of the best ways to enter into the bigger world of sondheim and i mean this brought me and this hooked me once i had it provided this meat pie i was hooked like i was like those that amazes me that, that amazes me that this is one of the more accessible of sometimes <laughs> shows yeah 
It's like, yeah, this is a good way to enter. Yeah. It's so Sondheim, though. It's dark. It's, as Jill said, it's raw. Gabby, like, it's just people. What was that quote, Gabby, you had about Sondheim talking about love stories? Oh, I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that. You've got, got a, you've got a little. Okay. Gabby's got a quote. Gabby's got a quote. But yeah, like I would say this is like a great kickoff production. Because after I watched this, I then went and watched the concert with George Hearn, Neil Patrick Harris, and Patti Lapone. Then I watched the Emma Thompson Brinterville version recently. You know, then I got to see the wonderful Takis reproduction in both London and in Toronto. I got to see it twice, and both times it just blew my socks off. So, you know, once like once you have Sweeney in your system, anytime there's a mounting of Sweeney, you'll want to sniff it out and see. How are they going to do the razor? How are they going to do the chair? Are they going to serve real meat pies? You know, like there's a joy in that of see because because Sondheim only like allowed Hal Prince to do the big industrial version because he goes, I know I can get a small, intimate concert eyes production anytime. Rarely do I get to do a big Sweeney production, and so getting to see this version to show the scale of what Sweeney can be, and then you get to go back and watch. The concerts, or you know, watch the bootlegs of the 2005 Patti LuPone Michael Severus version where they all played their own instruments. Like Sweeney's one of these great malleable things where you can put it all through the meat grinder every time, and, and like a new pie comes out that, that, that you can have, you know. So I love it. But um, uh, there we go. There we go. All right. So let's get into our last few questions, which are all kind of text based focused questions. So first off, we have, of all the musicals Sondheim composed, Sweeney Todd contains the most music with over 90% of the show featuring either a song or an underscore. Does this approach to the show's score add to the piece? Do you feel the score risks giving too much away plot-wise for those who are able to catch the certain leitmotifs that Sondheim uses? Michael, since you brought up voices and, and music, I want to hear your thoughts on this. And also, as a director, yeah, I know. I think I'm again. I was looking at these questions and thinking. I still think wonder, worry for the, our purposes. If I'm just too in, like, as the having played Sweeney, like mm-hmm. every production that I've done. Well, I mean, we know from watching the, every production. Usually, like Sweeney's not visible for the first while. So you, at the minute you hear the first. Whether there's a, a whistle or a or anything that's going to like launch the, I'm immediately taken to the tragedy of his life, mm-hmm. and I just puts me into the story as an actor that I have a hard time stepping out of that to go and, you know, I don't know if using that melody here is going to get the trigger my memory of such and so. Mm-hmm. I don't like. I haven't made those connections, and mm-hmm. if that's like, I, I don't know if that's like a cop out to get away from answering the question, <laughs> but it's just because I appreciate them. I definitely do, but I also have to say that sometimes they're probably. I bet you, like, I probably missed some. Uh, like, mm-hmm. if if you were suggesting that that there is a risk of giving too much of the plot away with some of the motifs that do show up. I think I was just too busy being self-involved <laughs> to, to notice, <laughs> to really notice. So I don't know that I picked up on them. And that's okay. weird. That's but like I'm, I'm, again, not really being, not having been a spectator multiple times, 
might be the reason why. Maybe that's my fair. thought. Fair, fair, fair. Jeremy, since you've think, like grown up with this production, yeah. what do you think? I think that though that all of the scoring that is in there, it's mm-hmm. just the delight comes when you do like those repeated viewings and you start to pick up like, oh wait, there are breadcrumbs all over the place that you can find things, but you won't find them all at first or 10th or 20th listening because Sonam yeah. does such a good job mm-hmm. of baking them so deeply into moments where you mm-hmm. might not even realize that that these themes are echoing around so much. No, I, I think, and I think that the scoring, especially in the ensemble, all of the different Ballad of Sweeney Todd iterations that keep the story kind of chugging forward. I think without those, tr- the transitions would be unbearable. I, I don't know how you would move from scene to scene without mm-hmm. all of this music to kind of propel things forward. I'd be interested in a, where there was more like more moments of silence to kind of counter that. But I love that that Sondheim's work is so complex and so spe- specified and, and all of these details are there if mm. you want to go and find them. Mm. Like Easter eggs. It's great. Yeah. Yes. Gabby, since you've sung the score as well, just like Michael has. What are your thoughts on like motifs? I had, and I was gonna, and I was gonna mention this before that, like in our production, because it was such a scaled down production of it, we had the (laughs) joy and torture of learning all of the ensemble parts as well. Oh my god! In addition to being our own characters, we were we sang every single ballad and the letter. And like every single <laughs> ensemble piece as well. So I got to know this score very intimately and I fended off Alzheimer's learning all seven ballads or whatever, you know, with all the different words. Anyway, that being said, what I was talking about before about it being so operatic, I think is so intentional. Like there's, I don't think it's a coincidence that like opera singers have been, you know, cast in, in, in these roles in concert versions. And and I think it's because of the full scored version of this production mm-hmm. that is the case. Like it is written to be a big dramatic opera, you know. Mm-hmm. And Son and Sondheim, who is such a opera aficionado, I think just has so much respect for that genre that it is fully intentional that he is putting in Barbara of Seville. Like you know what I mean? Like it's fully mm-hmm. fully intentional. And so I think that the music also is fully, fully intentional. And so I do not think that, um, I think that the show score adds immensely to the piece Mm -hmm. because that is the nature of what it is. The music Mm -hmm. is the drama in this piece. And I think the two go hand in hand. If you don't have the music, you don't have the tension. Mm -hmm. And so all of those light motifs, as Jared was sort of saying, like, yeah, we having known the show and and experiencing the show even a couple of times and knowing that these plot points, even if you don't know the show intimately, yeah, you maybe pick up on it now. But at the time that you're viewing it, it's all just adding to the drama and tension of it. I think that the brilliance of this is actually the 
like it, it seems obvious to us now, but as we were saying upon a first viewing, I don't think it's obvious at all. I think it's just, it just triggers an emotional state in you. That is what music does. That's the brilliance of what music does. Like it took, and also that makes that like, I play the freaking beggar woman and it took me upon like our, like three sing-throughs of the beggar woman's lullaby that was cut from this production to realize it was freaking poor thing. Like it took me, the person <laughs> learning it, like three yeah. rounds at the song right. to realize that it's a, essentially a, a poor thing reprise. So like, I do not think that upon first viewing of this musical, people are going to catch on and be like, that's the melody of this song I heard three hours ago. <laughs> and, that, and therefore, that's the character that Mrs. Lut that she was singing about. And therefore, that's the person that I'm seeing. I really do not think that mm -hmm. anybody would is going to be picking up on this. Mm -hmm. I think it mm -hmm. only adds to the tension. I think that these themes only add to the storytelling mm -hmm. because it is mu music is the drama of this show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jill, as someone who's sung sometimes, but not Sweeney, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on this? Because Into the Witch also does a lot of light motif work as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of like Michael with this of like, I because I've, I was watching it for the very first time and me being like a musical performer myself, like Ryan, who watched it with me, he kind of spoiled, like, again, I'd seen the Johnny Depp version, but the, a long time ago in fragmented viewing. So he kind of right out the gate was like, oh yeah, that's his old wife, the beggar woman. And then she dies. I'm like, thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate that. Love that. But then- You're sleeping on the couch as, tonight, honey. But as we're watching it, again, I, part of me kind of liked he said that because then my musical performer brain, I was able to pick up and be like, ooh, that's juicy. Like, I like that. Like what Gabby's saying, like that there are those little hints. But it wasn't until I had that specific cap on like the deep mm -hmm. dive notebook out of like okay this means that and mm -hmm. that means that or whatever but kind of like what michael was saying like i was just like watching the show and then just like like a personally like emotionally wrapped up in what gabby's saying and how the music is this pulsing driving factor and yes this piece alone musical piece would not like that is a character on stage, like the score, basically. Mm -hmm. But what's really neat is this being an adaptation of the play that Bond did, the chorus moments, and again, this is maybe kind of going against what I was saying about the staging being too rigid. I liked, again, me being a Sweeney Virgin, the same visual and musical sort of like filling in the pages, if you will, of the story. Mm -hmm. And of the people that are kind of surrounding our duo that I kind of liked as, and I think, I don't think you have to be like a performer or a musical person to see that uh, musical choice, that score choice, that tethering grounded choice mm -hmm. of just like giving some exposition as we kind of marry our way along, along mm -hmm. the piece. So that's cool. I almost say like, that's like, to me, like the Fisher Price Sondheim of ability. But then if you, again, like what Gabby's saying, you go in and you mm -hmm. sing the songs, you see the pieces, it's like mm -hmm. stuff starts sifting up for you. And mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. yeah, Sondheim's brilliant. Like, I'll well, say it again. Like, um, but... No, go ahead. Sorry, go, go. Finish your... oh, I was going to say like with Sunday in the Park with George, like 
like just the, the intentionality, just bringing, just giving, you know, we all love Sondheim, but giving like, you know, just the pointillism aspect of his scoring in Sunday and, you know, with the art. And I did a, we did a gig with Camilleri who loves Sunday as well and was pointing out that actually it's scored for seven instruments. And those are the seven like colors that are in the art. Like it's just yeah. like, it's so intense. Everything is so intentional. Yeah. And like, I just mm -hmm. love that about, about Sondheim. Yeah. And even just kind of going back, you again, were like having sung into the woods and I played little red back in the day. And then Jeremy sang like these little breadcrumbs. And it's like, that's so true. Like, again, like being a performer in Sondheim's pieces, like the fact that you have this layered playground of musicality to place upon your choices as the actor for the character. Like the fact that you have a composer kind of not doing the work for you, but like providing that textbook for you is, it's such an honor, you know, mm -hmm. to be in a song. And I'll say like, like, it's like, you know, you, you asked this question, is it giving the plot away? If it was, then again, I really believe it was intentional. Like we go mm -hmm. into the play mm -hmm. with the first line is attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. Like this is like, I'm, we are, we have experienced the story and we are mm -hmm. telling you this from the outside, having gone through it. So even if it, even if that happened, I really believe it, it's all part of the storytelling. Part yeah. of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, for me, all, I mean, I have, broken down the Sweeney Todd score because COVID was long and hard. So, you know, one like one afternoon, you just break out the Sweeney Todd score and just go through every line of music and go, aha, <coughs> look at you go, Sondheim. It also helped because I was prepping for our, before the downbeat episode. But like Sondheim did such a good job with the score. The fact that the, D the DS Ira, which is what people don't know, it's the death motif that started an opera and it's permeated everybody's thinking of the death like the death melody bum 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 you know like it's always there and Sondheim adapted it and worked it in so every time you know somebody sings the DSRA you know they're gonna die the only two people who are three who don't get the DSRA are Tobias Joanna and Anthony every other character at some point gets a DSRA in their melodic line <laughs> And it's a great little Sondheim hint of these people are going to die. They're not going to make it out of this musical alive. It's just brilliant and just so cinematic. And that helps move this piece through this big operatic plot. And it also creates that tone of light and dark. Like sometimes in the most dramatic moments, you have music that is a bit melodramatic. And it helps alleviate some of the tension in that moment. Like when he's killing Pirelli and the violins just go nuts with, with the da 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 da. And it's like, and it's like so big and so operatic. It's like, okay, we're not taking this overly seriously. Like, like this is almost Looney Tunes level of playing the moment with the music because it works. It, 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 it keeps that melodramatic operatic energy to the piece. It doesn't take itself too dramatic, too seriously. But even in like, like com comedy moments, like the great moment when Sweeney throws Pirelli in the trunk and his hand is lying out of the trunk. And the fact that the violins mimic the hand movements of the way his hands are reacting. It's so comedic and so cinematic. It's brilliant because not a lot of musicals do that type of deep underscoring 
like Sondheim gives to Sweeney here. It really does give that big cinematic approach. And as for the light motifs, yeah, I didn't catch it in grade seven when I watched it the first time. It wasn't until I actually studied music theory and broke down the score and went, ah, this is what Sondheim was doing. It took me a few listens to go, oh, the poor thing melody is the beggar woman's melody just done in a different tempo. It's the same thing, though. So once again, it's it's a great catch if you can catch it. So I'm sure there are music theorists and musicians who see the show once and go, I hear it, I got it. But people who don't know it won't catch it right away. And that's the joy of this piece is Sondheim keeps giving you things to come back to constantly. It's not light. It's not fluffy. It's You can go in at any time and, just, and do a Sondheim show and just pick it apart again and go, oh, look, this. There's I a found new something history. different this time. Found something yeah. different. We did. We did. We did. You know, so that's what I love about the score. So I don't think it gives it away unless you really know it really well. And you can catch it on your first time. It takes you a few viewings to really get the depth of what the score has in it. So, yeah. All right. Let's get to the next question, though. For a musical with such dark subject matter, the team, director Hal Prince, along with book writer Hugh Wheeler and composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim, were able to infuse this piece with several moments of comedy and levity. How does this combination of tones impact your viewing experience? Jeremy, as you know this production well, and you and, and this particular team when they're creating it, how did this tone, tone out, uh, tonal shifts work for you? I, I think it's what makes the show as brilliant as mm. it is. Like if it were just a like a angry psychopath running around killing people, without the humor, there's not much joy in in watching this. It's you don't get behind this these people and what they're doing. I think the humor is what allows us to go. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on Team Sweeney and Team Lovett mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. and like let's go. Let's just kill everybody and make meat pies and have a fun day of it. The humor mm. is kind of what allows us to to give that okay, to be like, okay, because it's got comedy to it, we can walk back on some of the like, this is abhorrent and awful, but it's so funny that we want to engage with it. We want to keep going. I think without the humor, it be, it's just not, it doesn't end up being a very enjoyable story. I think the humor is what makes the, it the thing that I keep wanting to come back to. It's like like a little chocolate treat or something. There's a little, <laughs> it's dark and, and sweet and uh, yeah. Yeah, so I love I, and I think that this production, like I've said before, I think it balances the two quite nicely when the funny moments happen. And then when the anger and the terror and that stuff happens, I believe that too, like the, the performers are so, um, so good at getting to that place of where I'm like, okay, I guess he's going to go kill these people now because <laughs> I, I mean, I can't really say any more than you've just said. Like, yeah. it's mm -hmm. time for the mm -hmm. chopper. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Gabby, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that like the best dramas are funny. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that, that it's, mm -hmm. I think it, in, in many, many, many very, very dramatic plays I've seen, some of them have been, mm -hmm. I'm like now mm -hmm. failing to think of an example off the top of my head. Maybe Jerry can think of one that I'm thinking of, but like, so funny. Sometimes we come out of a play that is so, that is, has such serious subject matter. And we're like, I can't believe how funny that was. 
Like just it, you need it. You need it. I think mm-hmm. that that we're really clear mm-hmm. that like you need comedy to enhance the drama. I think it allows us to like be affected by the drama more when it's funny. Yeah. And, and I think that like, you know, again, I'm going to draw my little shop comparison that like, you know, when you have these two on the spectrum, you know, you have like drama and comedy and you have like, like little, like both of them have aspects of both and have like that melodrama that we talked about before. Like melodrama is funny. You know, mm-hmm. like you were talking about the hand on the thing, like with Little Shop, the feeding, you know, at the end of act one, feeding the dentist to the plant, you know, limb by limb. Like that's mm-hmm. funny, even though it's mm-hmm. also morbid. So like on this scale, yeah. mm-hmm. you have like this like morbid, like idea of what you can do with theater. You have drama and you have comedy and you have like Little Shop here and you have Sweeney kind of here, you know, and like the two of them are like, going back and forth but Sweeney plays into the dramatic aspect of this melodrama and Little Mm. Shop plays into the comedy a little Mm. bit more so like Little Shop is considered a comedy Sweeney Todd is considered a drama but they both have these aspects Mm -hmm. of extremely serious moments and that's I think just what makes them work but specifically Sweeney Todd as a drama it's too ridiculous like it's, it's too ridiculous to not actually step out of ourselves and be like wait what they're killing these people mm-hmm. making them into pies like when you tell the plot of Sweeney Todd to anybody you have to have <laughs> some lightness to it or else it doesn't even make sense like mm-hmm. and so like you need it I would even go so far as to say the comedy is essential to the play and mm-hmm. sometimes it goes a little far like you do need both that's mm-hmm. I think what determines like a excellent production of Sweeney Todd versus an average production of Sweeney Todd is how to balance mm-hmm. the two but but it's like mm-hmm. it is essential to the mm-hmm. drama. The comedy is essential to the drama of the show. If I can snowball off of Gabby, sure. I'm thinking of I, I just recently caught Wild Woman at Cat Sandler's new play. At Soul we Pepper. did too. Yeah. That is a perfect iteration of like, look at all this horrible, weighted, historical, beastly facts, but then packed with like just like outlandish comedy, both physical and textually. Just a shout out to that. I think like what you were saying, Gabby, like that, just having, that's like one of the most recent things of exactly what you're saying, where it's drama and comedy waltzing with each other there a little bit. And that's like the beauty of theater too, like to have, again, it's going back to, I feel like the thesis for me, this thing is like this pendulum, where's the pendulum? Cause it's like, it's right. Like as humans, like we have even talking from like a a psychology point of view, like a Freud aspect, you know, like how many times I know this has happened to me. Like I hear such terrible news or like a passing or something. And like, I laugh and I'm like, what the heck? Why did I just laugh at that? But it's like where there's light, there's darkness, where there's darkness, there's light. And like, Mm -hmm. I just, and and bringing it kind of more to like bloodiness of it. I picture like, look at like, for example, and this is a shout out to our episode of The Crucible, which I believe is happening before or after this. But like yes. the image in that movie where Winona Ryder's Abigail, like they're dancing around the fire and then there's blood like all over her face, but she's got a massive smile. Right. Or like you have like Harlequin, for example, like that character alone, like mm-hmm. this, like this comedic, like mm-hmm. light, like again, dare I say, even like sensualness just add to the maniacal aspects of a character of a piece. And like something that stands out in particular to this Mm -hmm. question is, is the scene where I think it's the opening of act two, where 
um, we've now, act one ended, they're like, okay, we're going to kill a bunch of people and bake them into pies. And then you have intermission and we come back into act two and it's like, everyone's sitting around eating pies. So I looked right over to Ryan. I'm like, okay, so we've killed at least a handful of people. Like we've got a business going here. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this like jolly drinking thing. And she's like, I'm going to cut up bodies and put them in some pies. Like, it's like, this is great. Like there's Mm -hmm. something so layered about that. Yeah. Like we've already said it. Like I've seen comedies where drama swoops in. I've seen drama where comedy swoops in and it's like, that's, that's Mm -hmm. humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. So Michael. it absolutely impacts the viewing experience. That got mm-hmm. back to the question. And Michael. <laughs> and Michael, take us home. Uh, I would say I agree with everybody uh, so far. And I would just, but I want to add two different other ways of looking at it is again, going back to the same thing of being very sad for Sweeney. And there were moments of like, it's like when everybody's laughing at the situation, doesn't anybody care about my story? Like, <laughs> that's not what's happening. But you know what I mean? Like, just being so stuck on this, like feeling so sad for this poor man who had all this stuff happen to him, and he's just trying to get his life back, and all this shit happens, and he just and the mm-hmm. like. That's why the song Joanna, like the reprise of Joanna, and I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to stay on thing on topic, but it's just like I love that song so much. It's so repetitive. And you just, and it seems, but and and, and Jeremy, you were talking earlier about how it's so funny. And then, yes, you're absolutely right that it is. But that was one of my my most favorite parts mm-hmm. to perform in the show mm-hmm. because it's the juxtaposition of the comedy mm-hmm. of knocking those bodies down, but also becoming so lost in the loss of or the the, the accepting the acceptance of the loss, the permanent loss of Mm -hmm. your daughter no and deciding making a decision in that moment of knowing that you're never going to see her again if it's Mm -hmm. something you've been working towards it's heartbreaking to me and so when and so this idea of being laughed at during the whole thing just hurts a bit but then also at the same time i would all just propose that god that's good there's a lot of funny in there as well and there's a lot of little comedic Mm -hmm. bits but if you really look at what they're actually doing, they're eating people. It's a laugh at that ups the horror ante so much more. More than mm-hmm. just offers a bit of levity mm-hmm. to give contrast, sort of like what Gabby was saying, the necessity mm-hmm. of being able to have the balance. Mm-hmm. I think that it also can do mm-hmm. a go somewhere else to completely amplify mm-hmm. the horror of what it is that we're actually watching mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah. Michael, I just want to say, I want to sort of like say something about your experience doing the part and what you were saying about like co- comedy. And I, I, you said la- being laughed. I, I, I don't think in any way people are laughing at. Oh, no, no, Sweeney no. I know that. You know? But yeah. even like, I, I think that like Sweeney and the beggar woman have very similar experiences in terms of how we experience performing the show. Because mm-hmm. In the same way, I think that, like, for example, in the first Beggar Woman, Sweeney and Anthony interaction, like her, how do you like a land of all of that sailor boy stuff, like all of this high level sexuality of her performance that she goes in and out of is funny. It's funny yeah. for an audience to watch because it's over the top. It's ridiculous. She's a, 
But when you actually, in the same way that like you're talking about the comedy of in Joanna of like you singing this like so, this number full of sorrow while you're in a very mm -hmm. comedic way throwing these people down this chair. In the <laughs> same way, like as the beggar woman, while aspects of the way that this character is performed are comedic, that when you think, uh, when you actually take a second that I sort of couldn't let mm -hmm. myself get to doing it because of how absolutely tragic this character is, it, when you really take a second to think about this character and why she, why she's doing these things, it's possibly the saddest character in all theater. Like it's just the minute she even mm. is everything that she feels, she can't say. Like in City on Fire, mm. this crazy screaming rant that then the minute she feels like she's getting somewhere, she just loses her place, like in her mm -hmm. mind, and she just wanders down the street again. Like just these aspects of like it being so sad when you really think about it and go for it being mixed mm -hmm. in with these like very <laughs> comedic things that are just happening to to us mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. just the situation is mm -hmm. it's ridiculous and comedic mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. truth of it is not at all mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i mean yeah i mean to wrap all this out i mean the i think jeremy said it best right off the bat with the mel the melodramatic tone the the comedy that's infused into this piece is what makes sweeney palpable to audiences if it was just heavy dsera sledgehammery tragedy throughout the whole piece and i'm and i mean i, I mean i've watched product community productions that just hammer the tragedy just the tragedy the piece loses its life like we as human beings in some of our darkest moments laugh not because it's funny but it's a natural human reaction to break ourselves out of that moment you know like and i think that's what this piece does so well as it just it takes the darkest moments like as we we're saying god that's good a little priest where it's really all about the cannibalism that is happening and yet it's fun it's fun to watch mrs lovett and sweeney todd make jokes at each other like like what some of the best lines ever are is fiddle player no it's piccolo player why because it's piping hot you know like just that joke still cracks me up after all these years because it's funny like and there's just joy in that dark sense of humor i mean even shakespeare in his darkest tragedies has comedy because he knows that as audiences we cannot sit in darkness for so long that we will just become desensitized to it and just go, I can't watch this. Like one movie I cannot watch is Pursuit of Happiness. I watched it once, never again. That movie is just so freaking depressing. And so the last 10 seconds when, when like Will Smith walks away down the street clapping, doing the clapping hands above his head because he wins the day. But I'm like, dude, I watched you and your son sleep in a bathroom. I've watched you be robbed and go through hell. Like, this movie is just way too depressing. Like even like a dark movie like Schindler's List, which is tragic. Like I cry every time I watch that. Some of the lines Schindler gives, there is a touch of comedy to how he does that, to how he does that stuff. Like one of the darkest moments is when he's in the when he's in the synagogue with the Jewish 
men and he's negotiating and he does the fine, I'll walk away. I, 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 I'll just see what happens. Like, it's such a dark moment. But just the way Liam Neeson plays that moment, there is a sense of, what are you doing, Liam Neeson? Or, 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 you know, when he saves um, Ishtek Stern off, off the train and he's berating Ishtek Stern, I mean, the, how could you forget your papers? And he's berating the Nazi officers. There's something in that darkness that gives us a moment of, okay, all right, what's going on? And then the next moment, you know, tragedy strikes again. And that's the same thing here where we go from, you know, the worst pies in London. It's ridiculous. It's funny to Sweeney, your wife was raped and she took poison in it and has, in it, as far as you know, has died. Like a total 180 loop-de-loop of what you just go through within five minutes of, 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 of a scene, you know? So I just think this piece, you need the comedy. You need, like, and how Prince and Hugh Wheeler and Sondheim worked really well together to, once again, the cogs all working together to grind out that really well-minced meat pie, as it were. That is perfect for what the audiences need to take in this really tragic story. Because, yeah, if you actually stop and think about what's going on with the beggar woman, when she's talking about, you know, split the muff, mister, and, like, the tragedy of what this woman has lived through. You would walk out of the theater right then and there. Because it's like, oh my god, I can't watch what this woman goes through. It's horrible. I mean, that's why the song Lovely Ladies is written as such an up-tempo tune. It's because the writers of that went, okay, we just had soliloquies of Valjean. We've had I Dream to Dream. You know, it's been heavy. We need something to lighten up this piece a bit to get us to the next plot point. So let's, you know, give the prostitutes a really happy-go-lucky song about the tragedies of prostitution. So, you know, like, you have to have the comedy and the tragedy to make the combo work right. You can't just have one of too much or the other. It just doesn't work. So there we go. All right, last question to bring us home. And it gets into some historical stuff. So in the original Penny Dreadful, in which the characters of Sweeney Todd and Mrs. Love first appeared, called A String of Pearls, the revenge plot that we know today about the judge raping and, and attacking Sweeney's wife is um, not in that story. That element was added later by Christopher Bond after he, after he was inspired by like the Count of Monte Cristo and those type of tales. And that was done in the early 1970s. Originally, Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett were simply ambitious thieves who robbed and killed uns unsuspecting victims for their own gains. Did the addition of a new motive to Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett's crimes add or detract from their characterizations? Gabby, I'll let you start this one. Oh, okay. Well, you need a want. When you're mm -hmm. telling a piece of theater, you need a want. You know, it's one thing just to, to see these two characters be themselves, and they are fascinating characters, and they are rich characters. And mm -hmm. in another world, I could read a whole comic strip about them. I could buy the entire novel novella series about the adventures of Sweeney Todd and Mrs. Lovett, you know, and it would honestly involve, it would, a lot of it would look like a little priest. So I mm -hmm. love that we got like a little taste of that. I wanted to sort of add up to what you were saying last time is that like a little priest is really interesting in that contrary to a lot of Sondheim's songs where drama drives the song, like the plot, you know, like he forwards the plot through song. It does not through Little Priest. This is literally just for Son This is a little fun exercise for Sondheim to show these two characters having fun. So mm -hmm. I think that 
the adventures of Sweeney and Lovett are shown in a little priest and we get mm -hmm. that, that, and I think that that's an, that, that is enough. We obviously need to want like any movie version of a book or a comic strip or a, you know, well-known characters or whatever. There's always that added, you know, inciting incident that drives the story. For both of them, we need it. You know, we need a, a reason. Why are we telling this story right now? It's because of, in Sweeney's case, it's because of this. You know, it's because of what has happened. He comes back for revenge. Mrs. Lovett needs a better life. Again, my little shop comparison, you know, these are two outcasts that use an inciting incident to, to get out. Whether that's get out of their own pain get out of their poverty, get out of all of this stuff. They need it or else there's no story. My quote that I was going to say earlier is that in an interview with Sondheim that I had heard back in the day, he said they were asking about the next show he was going to write. And he said that he'd love to write a love story, but he said he doesn't want to write a love story like passion. He wants to write a love story like Sweeney Todd. Hmm. And I just thought that was so interesting that it's these two outcasts who come together in this crazy world, you know, and with needing to get out. And it is this, it is this story. It's the revenge plot that, that brings Sweeney to this story. And it is Sweeney's desire for revenge that he needs love it and that they work together. <laughs> so I think it only adds to. To, to their characterizations. I think that their characters are so rich and there's so much history, which I love witnessing, but, but there's no story without, there's no reason for us coming together to the theater. There's no reason for attend the tale of Sweeney Todd without this particular plot. Yeah. Deja vu. Can I snowball again? Also, yes, Joe snowball away. Um, because to me, like, it's literally in one of our characters' names right here. It's love. Like, like the adding of, it's love. Like, you're adding love to this, the adventures of Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd. It's Sweeney's loss of love and the lengths you will go to redeem that love, to find love. It's, and similar with Lovett, like, sure, she's, she has a crush on Ben or what have you, but it's, Love doesn't have to just necessarily be attributed to a person, but just like what to have a lovely life, like going back to the lovely ladies, like going back to just talking about comedy and drama, the fulcrum mm. of that is love. Right. And now I'm going back to like acting one-on-one Michael shirtless, find the love. Like, you know, it's that I think by adding, mm -hmm. yeah, by adding the revenge plot, you have the layers mm -hmm. and like love is the fulcrum mm -hmm. of that. I mean, uh, pass the hippie torch off to someone else now <laughs> michael as, uh, michael as a sweeney can you imagine doing this role without the revenge plot i wouldn't have done it <laughs> honestly <laughs> it's just i mean not really obviously i i have not re read any of the penny dreadfuls i i maybe it's bad to admit that i don't know i just the character just becomes so much more interesting with that plot mm -hmm. i the just I think that meant given my piece several times about what I looked for in the character to play. And that's the most interesting thing to me and what I found most important. And without it, it feels like there's just not knowing what else there might have been. There's just nothing to play. 
And I mean, I don't, I mean, Gabby put it perfectly as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. just with everything that, that you said, Gabby, about um, where the love is and that and having that incident that brings everything together and makes it all happen. I don't yeah. know how else to say it other than what you did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, I see you deep in thought over there. Well, I yeah, I think you could do the show without it, but I think it would be a pure like slapstick comedy with just a horrifying element. The revenge plot brings the tragedy and turns it into a tragic comedy, turns it into something completely different than what I imagine it originally would have been, which, you know, the idea of down and out people killing people, making pies and becoming successful as I don't know, small business owners, aside from that being, you know, like kind of a funny way to have a business, it just loses any sense of tragedy and of mm -hmm. like destiny. Like this, mm -hmm. there's a lot of this show that for me feels like mm -hmm. you were kind of, your hand has been forced. It's not something you ever would have wanted to do. Nobody came into this thinking like, hey, here's a fun idea. It just, this the the fallout from this original you know on neighbor mm -hmm. coveting and jealousy and sending benjamin away to to like i love your wife so i'm going to get rid of you and i'm going to swoop in here that sets the plate for all of the tragedy that follows so i think it was a really successful addition to the story to get to and it ties mm -hmm. everyone it ties the whole room together all of our mm -hmm. characters Mm -hmm. are connected by this previous incident. Mm -hmm. So they're all kind of doomed to the same fate from that one, mm -hmm. from the inciting incident, which happens like long before the, the play begins, mm -hmm. which I like. It has that history and, and uh, it gives all these characters, you can go in and have a backstory. You can cut the actors have so much room to play it's not just what's happened now it's what happened then who were they then and all of this time in between that's passed like you can dig into these relationships so well because of this one moment that they added mm -hmm. i think it, it really turns it from a from mm -hmm. a thought experiment of making people pies mm -hmm. into a mm -hmm. dramatic and and yeah. tragic arc really really well mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I mean, I'll say for me, like, yeah, like I've I've watched some of the old Sweeney Todd movies that came before Sondheim that really did just play to the penny dreadful concept. And that at that point, Sweeney Todd was just really just a <laughs> I'll polish them off. That was like his catchphrase back then, where it, where he actually had like a whole full trick chair that would actually do a complete flipperoo and dump them into the cellar by um um in the church crypt where they would chop them up, but it was all very melodramatic. It wasn't layered. And I think that's what this gave them by giving them the, the revenge motives really did allow them to become more layered as characters because on paper, you like, 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 like if you go back to their original versions, they really were just boogeymen. Like that was the whole concept of them was this at the same time as Jack the Ripper. It's meant to scare people. I mean, you have the, the horror stories of the cannibals up in Scotland, who attack the highway, people on the highway, and bring them into their caves and eat them. Like, but like that was kind of where this all came from, this concept of cannibalism and things like that. Like, it was meant to scare. It wasn't meant to 
do more than that. It was kind of like, like like back in the day, they used to say, you know, if kids weren't good, Sweeney was going to come and get them. So, you know, like there was stuff there, but it wasn't meaty. I don't, but I don't know a better word. The revenge plot gives it the meat that you need to chew on <laughs> to Same really man. get into what this piece is. Because, you know, like with Sweeney, the revenge plot gives us the sympathy we need to side with him in the story, even though what he does is terrible. But, you know, he's the victim of Judge Turpin. Not his fault. Mrs. Lovett suggested it. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. Like, Sweeney was A-OK with just killing the judge and the beetle. That was his original goal. Pirelli comes in and blackmails. So he's like, all right, well, I got to kill him, you know, get just to get him out of the way. And then it's Mrs. Lovett who goes, no, no, no. We're going to, like, incorporate this plan and, like, mass kill for, like, my gains. And that's what makes Mrs. Lovett such a great character, too, is the layers that any actress who plays that role gets to play in of what is going on with Mrs. Lovett? How, how much is she flying by the seat of her pants versus yeah. how much is she five steps ahead of everybody else going by giving Sweeney these razors? I'm giving him his weapon of choice to go and kill the judge and the beetle. And if I can get him to do that, then he'll love me. Like there's so many more layers of questions you have to answer as a performer as Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney, because it's like Sweeney, like there's so many cogs in that wheel too, where it's like the choice of killing Pirelli. Is it a split second decision or is it one where it's like the minute he says, I'm, what's his name? Danny, da uh, Daniel, like Daniel O'Higgins is my name. The minute he drops the pretense and says, I used to sweep up hair for you. Is Sweeney already plotting to kill this guy off before he even gets to, I want to blackmail you. Like, there's so many more choices and dynamics you play because this revenge plot gives you that extra meat to chew on. It takes mm -hmm. you from just being a simple, two-dimensional boogeyman to scare kids and makes them into a fully-fledged human being with desires and pain and love and all those things you need to make a really good dimensional character. That makes people want to come back and play these roles. Yeah. Like People love to play Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett because... There is so much in there. Everybody who watches it goes, I know how I would do it. It's, like, it's just like Mama Rose. People want to play Mama Rose because it's a meaty role that people have to make their choices on to put their stamp on it. And, you know, that's what I love about this. I mean, you watch George Hearn, you watch Michael Siveris, Michael Toronto, Brent Turville, anybody. Every Sweeney I've seen is completely different. <laughs> no Sweeney has ever been the same. It's incredible. And it's one of those few roles that really do give that choice, like Jean Valjean is a great role, but you only really, but you only really only play Jean Valjean one way. There's not a ton of, you know, layers to Jean Valjean. Javert's got more layers. Valjean is a very straightforward character. I love him dearly, but he doesn't have the layers that other characters have. He's very Clark Kent, good man who was wrongly accused. He's like the vanilla Sweeney Todd. Uh, <laughs> Like that could be a very I'm writing that musical. Down. Oh my god, yeah. I love that. That's I'm obsessed with that. Jean Valjean. Yeah. Also, so you're saying, Max, there's vanilla. a lot of there's a lot of ingredients to make yeah. to make this perfect pie. Also, we have a drinking game for this episode. Clearly, we how many times have we said meat or pie? And then you take <laughs> an extra bowl if you say meat pie. It's like the Sweeney Todd drink game when you watch the pro shot and you drink every time the beetle says my lord. And, and, and just ladies in their sensitivities alone. You My lord, get... I'd be off the couch. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's so much fun. 
But there we go. All right, everybody. We are done our time on Fleet Street. Before we go, we're going to give all our sign-offs where people can find and follow and get in touch and give their opinions. So we'll start with Mr. Michael Toronto. When you're not in New Zealand, where can people find and contact you? My phone number is... <laughs> I'm at Toronto with a W on the end on Instagram. Probably about it. Okay. As far as social media is concerned, I have Facebook too, but you know, yeah. who uses Facebook? It's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And, uh, and all these links will be linked down below as well. Gabby, where can mm -hmm. people find and follow you? Get your cabaret soundtrack. Where can people find all that good stuff? Yeah. So if you want to contact me, I'm probably either Facebook or Instagram is the best way. But Facebook, just my name, Gabby Epstein. Instagram at Gabby Faye Epstein, G-A-B-I-F-A-Y-E-P-S-T-E-I-N. That's linked to all of my stuff. But mm -hmm. if you want to check out my website, that is not at, out at date at all. To <laughs> update it. But you know, it's there. That's GabbyEpstein.com where you can mm -hmm. find links to all of my music and music videos, a shout out again for my latest album, Gab Sings Babs, where you can hear mine and Mark Camilleri's incredible arrangements of some of our favorite Barbra Streisand songs. And also Love. on my Instagram and, and website, all of my upcoming performances. Brilliant, brilliant. Jeremy, where can people find and follow you, good sir? On Instagram, it's at Jeremy Lapalm, L-A-P-A-L-M-E. It's French for the palm, like palm in ah. hand. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, sorry, gonna, that's where it comes Just from. Just kidding. My, my Extension of were, your arm. They were palm readers. Mm. Also, yeah, Gabby, <laughs> Gabby, you should check out Gabby's album to listen to their version of Not While I'm Around from Sweeney mm. Todd, which is uh, a particular delight. There you go. There you go. And Jeremy, do you provide free shaves? The closest that we'll ever know. Well, I I shave. I've never tried shaving anyone else. I honestly shaving myself sometimes get nervous with this, but I bought it a few years ago. I use it all the time. I have I, I take it to get sharpened, and I've never had to buy disposable razors again. They're fantastic. I recommend everyone who shaves regularly should look into getting a, a straight razor. It is terrifying, though, to watch him shave. It's terrifying. <laughs> Let's just make that clear. <laughs> yeah, I, so if you want I would not danger. trust myself with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just, I'm like, I'm waiting to just chop my head off with one of those. I'm like, maybe so cool, don't. Don't, I don't think I could ever use that. I would not trust myself. Apparently, it's quite an art to, to use a straight edge, to use a straight razor. So there we go. Jill, we're going to find follow you. Yes. So you can follow my artist Instagram account at jillian.robinson96. I just double checked the schedule. I believe this episode's going out right as I'm into tech of Souls of the Shield, which is a new three musical slash 12 micro musical adventure happening up in Muskoka. We are performing a show for Gravenhurst, a show for Bracebridge, a show for Huntsville. And Funnily enough, tonally enough, the musicals, they're written by Autumn Smith. The arrangement is by a music composer, Justin Hiscox. It is like Sondheim meets Les Mis, so like Sweeney <laughs> Les Mis spookiness. But then the text is like if Sarah Kane and Shakespeare had a baby up in Muskoka. So there's lots <laughs> going on. It, they're ensemble-driven pieces, and I'm playing a 
variety of women coming back to haunt their attackers, young women who have were lost too soon and are like lovely, holy beings and a lumberjack. There's so many things. So that's happening with Timberbeast Productions up north in a few days when this recording goes out. I love it. I love it. Go <laughs> see it. There are who there are who I love. I love I love those Autumn Smith shows. They're fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm really excited. Yes, absolutely. And you can find follow me at Mackenzie Horner on all social media platforms. And if you haven't gotten enough Sweeney Todd talk, head on over to my other podcast before the Downbeat and Musical Podcast, where we did a whole Sweeney Todd episode with the wonderful Autumn Smith as well, where we get even more into the production history of Sweeney Todd. We talk more about the songs. It's lots of good stuff there too. And check all that out. We do a whole bunch of song time ep- episodes. We just did our song time episode on what was the one we just did oh my goodness i'm blanking on it now oh, G- oh gypsy, gypsy right gypsy. Yeah. we just did gypsy we've done gypsy we've done sweeney we've done company we've done merrily so there's a lot there's a whole sweeney catalog you can check out there as well so head on that that way too all right everybody thank you so much for tuning in and you know attend the tale everybody attend the tale of sweeney todd who is for a free